0: To one. Do you want that last bourbon biscuit? No, Ros. You go for it. It'll be company for the rest of the packet, won't it? There was no call for that sort of cheek. Where's Sandra? Oh, her husband's home for a few days. She's going to call when he leaves. You can push a wheelchair around this time, Eleanor. I did it last time. Sandra usually claimed to be unable to walk properly after these concentrated periods spent in the company of her husband. So Ros had pulled a few local government strings and had procured a wheelchair for her. That chair had been dead useful. It had got them front row seats at a couple of Barneys public appearances. In fact, the benefits, as far as he was concerned, were so enormous that Ros had offered to damage something much more substantial of Sandra's when she once more regained the use of her legs, just so they could keep her in it. Predictably, she told Ros precisely where she could stick her offer. Charming. She simply had no loyalty, that was her trouble. She wasn't even at their meeting now, having decided to dump all of her prior arrangements on the whim of some fly-by-night occasional visitor. It really wasn't good enough. Have you bought it yet? Honestly, Ros really did come up with some ridiculous questions. For her to suggest that there would be even the remotest possibility that something like that could be in existence anywhere within pension book distance, and that Eleanor would not yet have taken steps to soon have it in her possession, was an affront to her appreciated credentials. Of course I've bought it, as I'm sure you have. That's how you find that information. Subtly, you don't just wade in and insult someone's integrity. Why do you suppose the commercial was on so late? Obviously, because people have jobs. You couldn't have a thing like that on in the daytime. The entire productivity of the country would go straight down the plughole. Use your initiative, Anna. Had she been overdosing on taxpayer-funded coffee or something? She was cheap, personified today. And the sheer hypocrisy of her, as if she would know anything whatsoever about productivity. Didn't she work for the council, if that was not a contradiction in terms? I thought having him actually there in the background doing a bit of dusting was an absolutely brilliant touch, didn't you, Eleanor? Oh, yes, absolutely. And what a thorough job he made of it, too. How many of those dusters do you reckon we get? What dusters? The dusters that Barney was advertising. He wasn't advertising dusters. No, the dusting was just a brilliant marketing ploy to distract us from the junk that he was actually trying to flog us. So what the hell had she and Ros both bought then? Weren't you listening? There she was again with her ridiculous questions. With an image like Barney Adams' backside taking all of her visual attention, it was perfectly excusable that Eleanor's other senses might have shut down for the duration. That meant fewer distractions. Listening? Listening to what? Well, it was a record of some sort. They don't make records anymore. You know what I mean. His song's on it. That's what he was doing on there. His backside was simply a front. And that certainly cleared one or two things up in Eleanor's mind. No wrong. That certainly cleared one or two things up in Eleanor's mind. The montage of photographs that had very rudely interrupted her view of Barney's ass cheeks with annoying regularity. And his song. Ros was right, now she thought about it. There had been a twenty-second burst of that alongside a variety of others. A recording of some sort, eh? A compilation. A funny sort of collection, and no mistake, based on the evidence of those photographs. Roland Ratt, Benny Hill, the Snowmen, the Crankies. A more inauspicious bunch would be hard to find in any other single location, except possibly a Barney Adams Arse Appreciators meeting at full complement. They weren't supposed to be his Arse Appreciators anymore, they were supposed to like his singing but that was a lot easier to promise than to actually put into practice. He didn't even make public appearances with his singing anymore. Not like the old days anyway. In the old days they'd witnessed him singing at an almost self-destructively close range. They'd followed him through the good times and the bad, meeting new people and spreading the word. They'd known every riot cop by his or her first name at one point. It just wasn't the same these days. He mimed now. At least it had to be presumed that he mimed now. His face was never actually visible during any of his public appearances, so the facts pertaining to his actual performance were few and far between. The song always sounded the same, so it was impossible for it to be any sort of live rendition. There was never a microphone nearby either, at least not one that could be seen. He turned up, he turned round, he turned them on, and then he turned tail and moved on to the next venue. It was crap, really. It was genius, really. An unquestionable stroke of marketing genius, particularly given the extremely limited time frame that had been available to him. Why waste that time trying to flog a veritable pig's ear as some sort of music-loving sales purse when their combined career could achieve much more dubious longevity down the long and winding path of infamy? It would have made so much more sense to have had Barney as the focus of Anthea's ire in that daft trash mag article of hers. If only she had told Humphrey precisely what she'd been planning could have perhaps suggested such a thing to her. Her words would have carried so much more weight, not that she was in any way fat, had they been referring to a man with a rear end like Varney's. People were shallow like that. Instead, Varney was himself plumbing new depths as far as his entertainment career was concerned, thanks to his association with girls, girls, girls. He hadn't exactly been cock-a-hoop at the chance to be associated with it either. He wasn't too happy about miming this thing wherever he went. What would he rather have done, then? Record a new version, singing the words himself? That would have resulted in audio destruction to rival the visual kind dispensed in the day of the Triffids. Not that Humphrey could afford to be too smug about the thing. The quality of his own singing voice had deteriorated over the years, and those lyrics had bubbled to the surface of his mind, like hydrogen sulphide in a bathtub, in such a terrifying manner that he was still trying to figure out what he had digested recently that might have contributed to that effect. A change of diet did seem prudent. Either that or a well-timed and perspicacious dump to clear his conscience. So Humphrey had endeavoured, at lightning speed, to get their song onto as many world's crappest collections as humanly possible. Their song was cheap, and it was crap. It had definitely found its niche. That was where the real money was, no question. Folks would always be divided over what music they actually liked. But crap, well, crap could unite them. Getting him to bend over in the background on the television last night was pornography by any other name and Humphrey suddenly realised that probably the greatest reason for his feeling of guilt while he was walking home in those early hours was that he promised Barney he would be watching his live performance and, thanks to Anthea, he hadn't been. Lying to Barney felt worse than lying to Anthea although it did incur far less risk of having something heavy chucked in his general direction. He could only imagine what the effect of this subliminal advertising on quite a large number of late-night shoppers must have been. Well, he didn't even have to imagine. He had the figures in black and white right there in front of him. The shopping channel had been monitoring the orders coming in and there was, without question, a direct correlation between Barney's actions and the amount of virtual money being wasted. A quick logarithm had apparently discovered that when Barney and his feather duster aimed low, the return was high. Allowing for the effects of any time lag attributable to shock, of course. To reach such a conclusion was hardly rocket science, as Humphrey had already told the producer of the programme the first time she'd called him that morning. She'd called him five more times after that, trying to book Barney to be in the background of some of the least exciting bargains they'd undertaken to try and shift to a gullible public. He was already pencilled in to assist in the flogging of a five-way ladder the following Thursday, and there were even moves afoot to give him his own half-hour slot. Actually, slot was an unfortunate turn of phrase. What they really wanted to do was to have a freeze frame of Barney's bum filling the screen for half an hour, with the details of some of the really hard to shift tack popping out of the middle of the screen and straight into people's brains. It was a sort of mind control the CIA would have been proud of. In fact, they could have made very good use of Barney, what with his singing having such enormous potential as a highly effective instrument of torture as well. They were going to have to have words in any case, he and Barney, to reclassify their working relationship, To maybe even get Barney to sign a contract. Humphrey didn't believe in those, he never had. By their very design, contracts came hand in hand with suspicion, greed and mistrust. Otherwise you wouldn't need one of the damn things in the first place. And anything that potentially gave a great deal of work to any sort of legal representative couldn't have been a good idea, not really. But there was Humphrey's own song to think of now. Although, of course, nobody could ever find out that he was the actual brains behind it which was fine and dandy with Barney. The boy was very unlikely to ever even think about double-crossing him on that score. No, he could have the dubious honour of laying full claim to that song, the singing, and any voluptuous huzzies he managed to attract for himself as a result of it. But in the modern cutthroat world of entertainment, perhaps a contract which gave Humphrey a legal right to a nice round 30% of his clients hard-earned might be a sensible way to proceed. It was predictable, which wasn't brilliant, but it did seem in some way sensible. Financial reward wasn't what he was after, either. Anthea would benefit from that far more than he ever would. He loved her, but he was not quite as daft as she and her crack legal team had obviously assumed. Perhaps he could get himself paid his 30% in kind. Spiders, worms, and framed photographs of him. That ought to keep Anthea at bay. And if, by chance, she was still paying off that total arsewipe of a father of his, he could arrange for some of it to be transferred into whiskey. Needless to say, only the very worst stuff. Michael would appreciate that. Not. Her telephone call had taken him completely by surprise. When she hadn't rang him the next morning, he'd simply thanked his lucky stars and continued with his erstwhile plans to win her back. He was mightily impressed with his behaviour of that evening, tempting though it had initially been to transform himself into the Humphrey from that blessed article and to ravish the woman until she screamed for mercy. And that wouldn't have helped her situation either, not when she'd ignored his own cries for clemency in similar circumstances over the years. Instead, he'd behaved impeccably, which was why he had been positively dreading getting her call. When nothing had been received during the first hour of his working day, he'd allowed himself to relax considerably. She was clearly not feeling humiliated nor embarrassed. Both of those emotions would have necessitated a definite call to Humphrey in order to lay the blame at his door for the way she was feeling. She was obviously not feeling guilty about tying him up and trying to seduce him either. Whenever Anthea felt guilty about something, she always made sure to lay the blame at his door for the way she was feeling. His plan must have worked. Any recollection she may have had as to his presence in that bedroom with her must have been attributed to her own drunken imagination. Either that or she didn't actually care enough about him anymore to even want to blame him for everything that had gone wrong. Hell's bells. It couldn't be that, could it? No. No. No way. he got away with it. Obviously he had. They were still on speaking terms, but just on a more casual basis. Theirs was a professional working relationship at the moment. Her silence was clearly a measure of her respect for both him and his ideas. At any rate, it bore none of the similarities to those silences of the past where she was blaming him for how she was feeling. There was no awful sense of foreboding, no hint of mortal dread. The sun was even shining outside. She appreciated him this time. That had to be it. He had big plans for getting her off the hook as far as that article was concerned, and he was certain that she was beginning to see him in a new light. Bloody hell, of course. The bedside lamp. She really would have seen him in a new light. And vice versa, of course. Big news, that. Huge news. All he had to do now was play things cool. Leave well alone, remain quietly in the background, and let Anthea stew in her own juices. All things considered, that did sound very sensible, but it definitely didn't sound very Humphrey. He made himself a deal. If she didn't call him that day, he would call her the next. That would put an extra 24-hour buffer between him and the previous evening. It would give his lies that extra element of believability. That day had passed with nothing from her. The next day dragged incessantly while he tried to figure out what he would say to her and how he would say it. When the telephone rang, he picked it up without even thinking about who it might have been. So engrossed was he in his plans for what he was going to say to Anthea when he called her. Instead, the sound of her voice as it announced her own phone call to him managed to momentarily throw him completely. Humphrey? Jesus, there she was. He straightened his tie and ran his fingers through his hair in a somewhat mysterious attempt to look his best for his beloved ex-wife. She'd spoken his name calmly and with no obvious emotion, yet there had to have been a reason why she felt it necessary to call him. Humphrey sat down behind his desk. Anthea, what can I do for you? He could have kicked himself. That was not only a stupid thing to say, it was downright dangerous too. There were a million things he could do for her. Some of them he'd tried to do and had been ridiculed for. Some of them he'd refused to do on the grounds of a medical exemption and had been punished very severely for. And what he really wanted to do for her, she wouldn't believe and let him. It was a daft thing for him to have gone and said. She'd obviously decided to go easy on him, though. That or she intended filing his generous offer away for future intimidation purposes. Oh, Sarah. She'd obviously decided to go easy on him, though. That or she intended filing his generous offer away for future intimidation purposes. They'd actually managed a rather amicable little conversation. Humphrey knew it was amicable because it had in fact been raining rather heavily that morning, but she hadn't even attempted to blame him. It wasn't ideal though, even from that point of view. The passionate nature of their relationship had seemingly disappeared completely, to be replaced by a generic little confab about the weather. Not ideal, that, by any means. Apart from anything else, it gave him no clues as to her real feelings. He was beginning to wish he had made love to her the night before last. It would at least have provided her with a bunker full of suitable ammunition. It was even just about possible that he had done. He had fallen asleep, She could very well have taken matters into her own hands. Perhaps that was the reason she'd left the light on, to help with the navigational aspect of things. After all, they were talking about a very small vessel. He felt ill. She wouldn't have done that, surely. But if she had, where were the recriminations? Where was the sarcasm? Where the hell was the girl he knew and loved? Did you want to say something to me, Anthea? Words, not actions, very clever retrospectively, she might let slip with a few answers, and hopefully the future tense might open up a box of its own possibilities. He would even settle for a passionate request to place his own head on a pole at that moment. You? Why would I want you? A lesser man might have balked at the tone of that retort. A lesser man of more intelligence, perhaps, who had not gone out of his way to provoke such a response in the first place. That was very much how he had driven his own father towards violence in the past. He wasn't admitting that from the point of view of any sort of victim either. No, he'd consistently known what to do in order to aggravate Michael and irrespective of any inevitable consequences he'd continually done it. How many times could he have taken the easy option and said yes to his father instead of no? Or said nothing at all instead of some bare-faced cheat designed to provoke just the sort of reaction it invariably had? Humphrey was an attention seeker that much could hardly be denied except by him because by denying it even in the face of a mountain of irrefutable evidence, he would undoubtedly get even more attention. That old bugger would be getting ready for his cruise now. He'd be busy charging up his laptop and mobile phone and leaving every conceivable detail of his whereabouts for the next week or so with as many people as possible, just to make himself feel more important. That whole trip was an exercise in arrogance and pompous ostentation. It was tailor-made for a personality like Michael's. Humphrey had been so busy entertaining his various thoughts, particularly the thoughts of that old bastard, that he hadn't actually been aware of Anthea talking to him. That was his life-coaching golden rule shot to pieces anyway, never mind the lack of respect it had shown to her. She did tend to go on and on and on, though, and she never, ever seemed to take a breath. When he subsequently played back the recording of her somewhat one-sided conversation, using the unedited master tape held in his subconscious, it had struck him that she must have started her response immediately after posing that question to him, without either pausing to inhale or leaving him any sort of gap in which to offer any ideas of his own. Why would I want you? Funny, it hadn't given the impression of being any sort of rhetorical inquiry. Humphrey could, in theory, have come up with a whole list of valid reasons as to why she might want him. It may have required a fair degree of chutzpah, but he'd always had plenty of that. She evidently hadn't wanted to hear anything at all from him, though. She'd answered her own question with what appeared to be one long sentence. The gist of it was fairly easy to pick up. She had no use for him whatsoever because, by definition, he was useless. She didn't need him and she didn't need anyone. What was more, she was going away for a few days just to prove that she could cope very nicely on her own. Yes, and Sandra was going with her. That was a very strange development. Sandra was the absolute bane of her existence. True, Humphrey had taken over rather a lot of Sandra's responsibilities in recent times, getting on Anthea's tits on a regular basis, for instance, but it was still Sandra who ultimately held the title. Apart from her popularity, her personality, her looks and her figure, Sandra also possessed one other attribute that was fundamentally guaranteed to wind her sister up. She knew her. They had shared memories and shared experiences. Sandra had the keys to all of those locked doors up in her mind. From that point of view, she was extraordinarily dangerous. So the question had to be asked. Why the hell was Anthea taking her away on holiday with her? The destination was a mystery. She hadn't mentioned any specific details, apart from informing Humphrey that it had been something he'd always promised her they would do, but which he'd never had the time to go through with. On the face of it, that could have been a trip to absolutely anywhere in the world, or a visit to one of the more ambitious pages in The Joy of Sex. Oh, and his father had apparently advised her to do it. That at least eliminated the joy of sex from his inquiries, then. Didn't it? Good grief. No, surely Michael would have been much more likely to have advised her to go and jump in a lake. Although the news that he'd thought to help her in any way at all was a peculiar development, too. In fact, the whole thing was odd. When she finally hung up on him, presumably to be wheeled away and given oxygen, he reflected on her words and the tone of them. Where was the key to the mystery? Was it something she had said, or something she hadn't? Sandra's presence on the scene gave him enormous encouragement. Fair enough, there would probably be a number of rather uncomplimentary conversations regarding his sexual prowess. But no publicity was bad publicity. It would at least keep him in Anthea's thoughts, however murderous they might subsequently prove to be. And Sandra being there would undoubtedly keep any other men away from his ex-wife, by virtue of the fact that Anthea's own lack of self-esteem would assume these men would be more interested in her sister than in her. It did seem like a reasonable situation. The only strange thing being why she thought to tell him about the trip in the first place. To make him jealous? Possibly. To make him suddenly offer to usurp Sandra and come away with her himself? Intriguing. Maybe that was why she'd become more angry and frustrated as the call had gone on. If so, it was a bit richer. She hadn't left a single gap for him to slot in even the tiniest, most inconsequential thing. Just as well, really, because that did sound like something Humphrey might have been just about daft enough to try and do. The internet really was a fascinating thing. Barney's newfangled career path had been almost exclusively founded there, apart from a few quid spent on a microphone and a computer program. It would have been happily self sustaining in there, too by public opinion and comment, and the odd photograph uploaded from somebody's camera phone. Reality. That was a very funny concept. Which was the real Barney? The one singing the song that was currently topping the charts on the island of Tuvalu? Or the one living the perceived life of Riley somewhere out there in cyberspace? Or could it possibly have been the one sitting in Humphrey's office at that very moment, picking his nose and then brazenly devouring the contents? If his appreciators could only see him now, Right, I need a bit of a serious word. What with me? Brilliant deductive powers there, Barney. It's about your career. Our career, if you like. By the way, Humphrey, my mum wants to meet you to thank you for helping me to build up my career. With very limited construction materials, she said. What did she mean by that, do you suppose? Um, I think it means she's proud of you. Barney beamed. He was so trusting, bless his little heart. But what did she actually mean by that? Um, would you like a jelly top? Oh, thanks very much. Talk of contracts and things would probably have to wait now, and that was entirely Humphrey's own fault. Barney would be preoccupied for the next twenty minutes, trying to decide which colour sweetie he wanted. God, the frown on him. It was a simple enough task, was it not? The bloke needed a woman in his life, perhaps. That was, after all, how most men managed to offload a great many of their responsibilities. No woman would sit there and allow him to waste valuable time like this. Not when he could be up a five-way ladder, cleaning up the guttering, or painting the garage door, or attending to her needs in some other, more imaginative way. It was Sod's law, of course. He couldn't just go and find himself a girlfriend or anything now. Not now, he was an international object of latent, lower-half lust. He would have to remain celibate forever. Either that, or he'd have to inhabit that netherworld of paparazzi late-night visits to nightclubs, and being pictured snogging and groping a different trollop every evening. He might as well nail his colours to the mast early on, if that was to be the direction his career would ultimately take. If you could ever decide what colours they were going to bloody be. Oh well, he might as well have a word with him about something of rather more pressing importance then. Right, my extensive spy network informs me that you stood up for a woman on the bus yesterday afternoon. Is this true? The spy network concerned was a member of Barney's own Appreciation Society, who had somehow obtained photographic evidence of this act of wanton chivalry while on her way into town during office hours to buy herself a new cardigan. "'I didn't mean anything by it, Humphrey, I swear to you!' Oh Jesus, he was babbling. I was wearing my ever-so-tight trousers and they were cutting off my circulation. That was all, I swear it!' Barney seemed genuinely distressed no doubt mindful of the consequences if he would have identified as someone who treated women differently in this day and age. His career would be over before it had even begun, and that song would lose a great deal of its ironic charm, that was for sure. Humphrey rushed to his side. It's all right, old son, it's not a problem, not this time anyway. As long as there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for it, we're fine, because obviously you are the very epitome of macho for some people now, you know. And this whole scenario, if taken out of context, could indicate that you have gone soft. Having said that, of course, it is worth pointing out that everything looks just as firm as ever in the picture I saw regarding this incident. He decided to keep to himself the news that Eleanor had promised to run him off his own personal copy of the thing. It was none of Barney's business. He was public property now. His rebuttal of the scurrilous accusations being laid against him would be posted around the web by late afternoon. Humphrey might even get a call from the makers of those trousers Barney had been wearing, looking to unite with them for a bit of free publicity. It was, without doubt, a sad indictment of modern times that a bloke could make the news simply for giving up his seat for a woman on a busy bus. Humphrey would have liked to think that it was the action itself that had caused all the fuss. How chivalrous he'd been, and what an absolute gentleman he was, things of that nature. Deep down, though, he feared the very worst. He was looking at a sexist, chauvinist pig over there. Yes, of course he was. There was clearly a difference between being a real man and falling foul of the rules on feminism. Were there even any rules on feminism? Things did seem to be made up on a purely ad hoc basis. His own Herculean alter ego had proved that one. A more perfect specimen of masculinity could not possibly have existed, and yet even he had still got everything wrong. Chapter 2 She stared gloomily from the palatial grandeur of her cabin's own private balcony. The sea was calm, the sailing was smooth, and the moon shone brightly at her, defiantly mocking her misery. Clouds and rain would have been so much more in keeping with her mood. They would have made sure those people out on deck were inconvenienced too. Everywhere she looked, she saw happy, contented people, and that was ridiculous. No odds on earth could have supported the fact that she alone, amongst a passenger and crew list of over 3,000 people, could be the only miserable bugger on board. She was definitely the loneliest. How could she be lonely on board a ship jam-packed with happy, carefree people? Perhaps that was it. She had nothing in common with happy folk. She had no business even being among them. What in hell was wrong with her? The fact she was alone was not good. Sandra had double-crossed her. She'd said she was going to come with her to hold her hand, but all the time she'd had the fingers on her own hand, tightly crossed, waiting for a better offer, naturally. She'd always been the same. As a teenager, she would agree to go to social events with a small army of drooling suitors, selecting the choicest and most impressive partner from all of them at the very last minute, and creating artificial shortages for everybody else. The boys never seemed to learn their lesson, either. The cast-offs almost never went to any ball having burned their bridges rather too spectacularly with their alternative options. Those ladies would already have secured themselves bargain-basement alternatives of their own by then. Even if it did have to be someone from the astronomy club, at least it was a date of some description. Anthea had kept well out of all that. Three years older, it was embarrassing enough to see boys who should have been asking her out, choosing instead to mooch after Sandra. Anthea had self declared herself off-bounds, before anybody else could, and had begun to build the character that would keep all men at bay until her ex-husband had inexplicably deemed her worthy of a laugh. The last laugh was on Sandra now, though, because it had only been Anthea's desperation that had seen the bitch get that invitation in the first place. Her own husband wouldn't be home forever, and then she'd be sorry she turned her sister down. Oh, yes. Anthea's problems hadn't gone away. They'd simply been waved away with her from Southampton two days before. It had cost her an arm and a leg, this cabin. The sort of cabin that Humphrey had always promised her a trip in. One day. Perhaps. It had two single beds, so that was a distinct possibility. Devious sod. The holiday of a lifetime. That was how he'd rather prematurely referred to its potential. That had been what had instinctively put her off. Not the fact that he'd been premature. She was used to that. No, it was the implication that it would mark, in recreational terms the very pinnacle of her existence. There were never any pinnacles any other time he was premature, certainly not for her, and there wouldn't have been in that case either. She had already experienced the best day of her life, and it had been noteworthy, if for no other reason than that she'd finally got rid of that god-awful name Mumble. It had cost her parents a small fortune too. That was another reason it had been memorable. Thoughts of their own cruise had been towed into dry dock for the duration because of it, and their swish new caravan had been downgraded to a bargain tent for millets and two second-hand sleeping packs. Their home bar hadn't amounted to very much either, just a winemaking kit and a dartboard. Still, they'd wanted rid of her, and it had been their own fault the event had reached such a ludicrous level of expense. It was patently something they'd never thought would ever happen, and they intended to push the boat out. Quite a sad phrase, really, given their own sacrifices. Anthea had made her own sacrifices. As should have been expected on the best day of her life, she'd been the focus of quite a lot of attention. This had become more and more difficult to cope with during her day, a deterioration in her mood which could be correlated almost exactly with the number of units of alcohol she'd poured down her neck during her day. And that could have been directly correlated with the number of people she'd seen sidling up to Humphrey with a sympathetic look or an arm around his shoulder throughout her day. Friends of her parents, these were, People who'd known her her whole life. People who could see what a mistake Humphrey was making. Even Sandra had tried her luck, although Anthea had intervened well and truly at that point and had smashed all three tiers of her wedding cake over her head. There'd been an incredibly unsavoury scene after that, with people rushing from the four corners of the church hall to come and lob a fondant fancy or smoke smoked salmon sandwich, ostensibly for good luck. People always had to follow the crowd, didn't they? Her parents had chucked more than anybody else, mostly at each other. It was the only bit of passion she'd ever seen them become embroiled in. All in all, it had been far from the sort of day one would ever want to hold up as a representation of the best day of one's life. That, that bitch Sandra, to think she'd been reduced to almost begging her to come on that cruise with her. It was completely humiliating, especially as she'd evidently then turned her down. There'd been no warning, none at all, or she wouldn't have been quite so mouthy in her dealings with Humphrey. She'd wanted to make him jealous, that was undeniable. Why she'd wanted to do so was rather more mysterious, and even more mysterious was how she thought she could ever achieve such a thing. This was Humphrey, who, despite her very best, or very worst, efforts, could legitimately have claimed to have known her. Humphrey, who hopefully knew, deep down, how much she still loved him as much as she had the capacity to love anybody anyway. She loved him more than she loved herself. There, she'd said it. However, that was hardly a very ringing endorsement of her affections. She might equally have said the same thing about taxes, the ageing process and dysentery. Any hopes she may have had of cashing in on that ridiculous magazine article had been curtailed just after the ship weighed anchor. That was around about the time she'd fully appreciated what a selfish, double-crossing dirtbag her sister was. This realisation had then caused her to fling the rucksack she'd brought with her, which contained 35 copies of that magazine, as well as a 1975 guidebook to the British Isles, borrowed from her shop, with a 50 pence, now non-refundable deposit, straight into Southampton water. That left her with almost nothing to keep her occupied but her little personal MP3 player, which, fortunately, she'd seen fit to load up with the complete unabridged audio adventures of Miss Marple. Associating herself once more with that article would have been a high-risk strategy but she had thought it through. It flew straight in the face of everything Humphrey had advised her to do, so that obviously gave it tremendous appeal. She'd been planning on leaving the copies randomly scattered around the vessel, casually opened up at the offending pages, and then mingling with her fellow passengers, waiting for sympathy. She'd been secretly practising her autograph too, just in case. It should at least have been a cracking conversation starter, and she was usually so hopeless at things like that, which was why Sandra was supposed to have been there to help her. Anthea could have been someone. Now instead, she was simply a nobody. Worse than a nobody, because she didn't know who, if indeed any, of her fellow holidaymakers had seen anything of the article already. They could all have been sniggering at her from behind their Singapore slings, for she knew. They were still enjoying themselves down there on the outer deck. Didn't they have any beds to go to? They were probably sniggering at her now, come to think of it. Well, she would have to be particularly careful about going out from now on, especially given her earlier altercation with John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. That was Sandra's fault too. They were supposed to have eaten together of an evening in the splendour of the main dining room. An intimidating place to be on your own, especially for someone as self-conscious as Anthea. She wouldn't be going back there. She couldn't be going back there. Just in case she ran into John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. Quite why she'd ever agreed to share a table with a complete stranger was anybody's guess. He was American, that might have partially explained things. He was vaguely exotic and would almost certainly not have heard any of the fictional tales of her sexually maniacal ex-husband. It was something out of character for her to do, that might also have provided one or two answers. She wanted the tale to tell Humphrey when she reached dry land, and having dinner with a tall, dark and handsome stranger seemed like a step in the right direction. The fact that John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was looked nothing like that at all and that the description itself would have been much more appropriate if used by her dinner companion to chronicle the appearance of Anthea herself was neither here nor there. There was no reason for her ex-husband to ever know the reality of the situation. She managed to shake off John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was shortly before midnight. That was a story she intended to stick to at any rate. A more cynical explanation for their parting may in fact have been that he'd been waiting all evening for her to pay a visit to the toilet so he could flee to the safety of his own cabin as fast as his elderly legs and his deck shoes could take him. That latter explanation was the one that had occurred to Anthea first, despite the fact that it meant being unnecessarily harsh on herself. After all, he could have made his excuses and left an awful lot earlier in the evening, if he'd really wanted to. As it was, she'd invested a good four hours of her life listening to him droning on. Hearing him anyway, if not actually listening. A whole evening wasted, and for what? Another date for the following evening. Big deal. Another four hours of listening to him talking. Which would actually be another four hours of any pretending to listen, while at the same time trying to think of one single, solitary, witty remark with which to interrupt the monologue of John, or Jim, or whatever the hell his name was. Other than the next evening's arrangements, she couldn't recall one single thing he'd said to her. Whatever John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was had been on about for the entire evening would remain unknown forever to everyone but him. Hypnotic regression couldn't even have liberated the details of their horribly one-sided conversation from Anthea's subconscious because nothing he'd said had even registered. It was that simple. Nothing after the bit where he told her how beautiful she was anyway. Well, What would have been the point of listening to any more rubbish like that? He must have been a bit balmy, that was a given. And not a very good liar, either. Beautiful. Yeah, right. This dating lark was not going to be easy. That much was obvious. And someone like Anthea couldn't really afford to be too fussy. Any man who wasn't actually being lowered into a six-foot hole would automatically need to be filed under P for potential. John or Jim, or whatever the hell his name was, did appear to fit that bill. Yet, having revealed himself to be both deranged and apparently desperate, he'd inexplicably not then gone that one logical stage further. Why hadn't he asked her if she wanted a stroll around the promenade deck? Or a look at his cabin? Or rampant sex against her own balcony railing? Anything! She threw herself miserably down into her armchair and reached for the television remote. The ship's entertainment director crackled into view, Halfway through her rolling reminder of all the exciting things Anthea was far too boring to ever be able to find herself becoming involved in the following day. She was a depressingly beautiful woman, the ship's entertainment director. Louise something, that was her name. Oh Christ, how could she not have remembered that, for heaven's sake? After all, the woman had gone out of her way to introduce herself to her the very first day she was aboard. Louise Lovewell. And she'd even remarked on the coincidence of them both having the same surname. Although it had emerged that her alliterative nomenclature was purely a stage name of some description. It was catchy in the entertainment industry, or so she said. Adamant, Bobby Ball, Charlie Chester. Yes, this Louise may well have been onto something there. Hold up, Charlie Chester? Flaming hell, just how old was she? Anthea had been rather suspicious of their entire conversation at the time, assuming that this Louise woman must have seen that story about her in the magazine. But if she had seen it, she didn't mention it. And Anthea was certainly not about to. She had seemed like a nice woman, though, and Anthea didn't say that about many of them. She felt like she had one ally on board that boat with her anyway. It was at times like these that she particularly found herself missing Humphrey, True, he was annoying, hopeless, and probably hated her with a passion. But he would still have been handy to have had around on a trip like this. This trip to celebrate her divorce from him. He would have been handy to protect her, handy to hide behind. Not as handy as he used to be for that unenviable task, but good enough. She could have checked out other men from the safety of actually being attached to one, however unsuitable Humphrey had turned out to be. That was where she'd gone wrong in her whole approach to this dating lark. Had she been able to drive and had found herself needing a new car, she wouldn't have been her old one until taking possession of the new one. In fact, she would have driven the old one to the showroom, abandoned it in part exchange, and then zoomed off with the new one. She should have done something similar with her ex-husband. She might even have enjoyed that last drive so much that the thought of a newer model might not have seemed quite so appealing. Even with a dodgy clutch, Worn upholstery and a very unimpressive top speed. At least she'd known how to drive him. Sort of. They'd been a good team most of the time. And even the most appallingly unreliable old banger had to be better than having no transportation whatsoever. Oh, that was interesting. The 70s and 80s experience. A live show happening several times during the voyage. That sounded right up her street. Had Sandra been there, she would have been off like a shot to get their free tickets, just in case Simon Le Bon's doppelganger was planning on putting in an appearance. There was no sign of him in the clip they were playing as a teaser for the whole event, but was that Catweasel? It looked very much like him. He could probably give a rather good account of himself as the Crow Man too, come to that. But what was he doing? Oh, that was clever, that was. A whole load of electricery powered gadgets from the 70s and 80s that he was switching on and being absolutely amazed by, all to the sound of the Pointer Sisters, automatic. Humphrey liked the Pointer Sisters. Anthea did too, for the most part, barring a rather unpleasant experience out on the moors, sometime around their last ever wedding anniversary. She'd convinced him that his fuel gauge was faulty and had then intentionally made sure they got hopelessly lost in the middle of nowhere. Then Humphrey had become rather too excited. The Pointer sisters didn't seem to have any slow songs, certainly not the CD they've been listening to. Thank God they hadn't been trying to make love to the Neutron dance. The Crowman, Simon Le Bon, and no Humphrey. No prizes for getting what dream awaited her. There really was no escape from herself. Not ever. Michael had no recollection of ever advising his former daughter-in-law to get himself on one of these cruises. That was just as well, really, because had he known that he'd chosen the same voyage as her, he might have started to question the exclusive nature of his own trip. He'd not yet had the pleasure of making the acquaintance of the lovely Louise, either. He would, of course, have recognised her, and would potentially have considered bringing up quite a wide range of rather embarrassing topics from their collective past for conversation. It seemed as though her luck was in, though, because he was hardly going to be desperate enough to ever have to scrutinise either the ship's TV, or the ship's programme of organised entertainment. Not while there was an exclusive whisky lounge, together with its associated high-powered resident incumbents. It did close occasionally, but that was when he headed for the smartest restaurant on board. None of your all-inclusive rubbish there. It was one of those very smart affairs, all big plates and small portions. Truth be told, he'd had to stop by the 24-hour all-you-can-eat buffet on a couple of occasions, purely to supplement his exclusively expensive but miserably meagre luxury ration. Whenever he did that, however, he always made sure to bring along either his phone, or his laptop, or his Rolex. Or all three. Just in case he was mistaken for one of the ordinary plebs. Michael's suite was impressive. Far too impressive for a single man travelling alone. It was a waste, as a matter of fact. He'd only managed to procure it for himself in the first place because of the rather unfortunate demise of the octogenarian who had originally booked it. Well, fortunate for him, at any anyway. rate. It was the sort of luxury he wouldn't normally have been able to justify, given the sheer futility of lobbing money at something nobody would ever even know about. It was the same reason he didn't contribute to charities anonymously. As a rule, if he was going to contemplate shelling out serious big ones, he expected to receive the adulation and the adoration of the less fortunate into the bargain. It was only fair. To that end, he'd even speculated as to whether it was going to be worth his while trying to attract a companion back to his luxury pad for an evening. Just an evening, mind. There would be no romance to the sound of the waves, no breakfasting together watching the sunrise. There would be a tour of the grounds, a swig from the room service cocktail menu, a fond his wallet, if she played her cards right, and then a cold shoulder shove straight out the door. Treating a mean, that was it. Rich men could treat women any way they damn well pleased. That was enormous fun, particularly when the arrogance needed to pull off such bravery was also perceived as a bit of a positive character trait. That was one of the things that damn son of his had never ever managed to get to grips with. All things considered, though, it seemed unlikely that any women would be getting in that suite. For one thing, he was going to find it incredibly difficult to pull an impressionable young lady from within the confines of any of the leather sofas in the exclusive whiskey lounge. And for another, there didn't seem to be any impressionable young ladies anywhere on that ship. They were all even older than he was. Hardly a suitable trophy to be seen escorting back to one's swish, swanky suite. That is, if they could even have reached the door without him getting his feet run over by her mobility scooter. Never mind, he still had the exclusive whisky lounge. His first trip in there had been made with some degree of apprehension. Imagine that. Michael Lovewell QC, being apprehensive about anything but death and taxes. And Humphrey, of course. Oh, and Anthea. By God, yes, and her. He was used to being the big fish in a very tiny, rather stagnant pond, and he'd allowed his conversational skills to atrophy accordingly. If it was something in totally inscrutable Latin relating to his legal expertise, or something smug and punch in the mouthworthy relating to his extensive property portfolio, he was fine and dandy. But these were a completely new set of circumstances. There'd been a moment where he'd worried about whether or not anybody would detect any kind of a residual son-of-a-dustman twang in his voice. Then there'd been a moment when he worried whether he might be a comparative pauper compared to the rest of the semi-alcoholic whisky connoisseurs. Where would he have gone then to get some attention and respect? Well, there was always the competitive games arena on deck six. He'd seen a number of jigsaw puzzle works in progress there, and had even seen fit to pinch one or two pieces from each of the puzzles, just for a laugh. He'd also noticed at least one game of Monopoly down there. It was based around Newcastle United Football Club for some extraordinary reason, But the principle for winning must be the same, and he would be absolutely certain of winning around there, because he could merely bribe the barman to bring a suitably spiked refreshment to his opponent at regular intervals. Or indeed, irregular intervals, depending entirely upon whether he was winning or not. What was the price of a couple of bottles of Verve Clico compared to the satisfaction of sinking the foundations for your first hotel on Alan Shearer? Even if it would bring back painful memories of the season he had been forced to support Blackburn Rovers. There was no comparison in terms of satisfaction, that was for sure, and that included all those predatory widows out there with their own three mile an hour transport as well. As luck would have it though, the exclusive whiskey lounge had not proved anything like as intimidating as he'd feared. The occupants therein may have talked the talk, but they were a long way short of walking any walks, almost literally some of them. Those little scooters looked a bit good actually, he might have to see about getting himself one of those when he got back on terra firma. He was already checked out on a golfing buggy, so his driving license endorsements would presumably have been sufficient as they stood. Anyway, the room seemed to be permanently full of an absolute alphabet soup of titles and honours, which would have been superficially intimidating to anybody, even men of Michael's genius who'd been called to the bar in 1970. But each and every one of them had accepted his offer of a drink. A big mistake, as far as achieving any sort of parity with him was concerned. They'd become his inferiors simply by that action, doomed to an immediate future of having to listen to him droning on and on and on. Chapter 3 He'd lectured him for 20 minutes about the innumerable errors of his ways. Michael didn't care anymore whether the 80s were a funny time or not. His son was an embarrassment, plain and simple. Rehearsals for the starring role in the summer-term production of Greece. it was this time. He ought to have been revising for his bloody exams, not dressing up and making an idiot of himself in front of all the other parents. Thank goodness the boy had been putting on the weight of late and had not dragged the family name even further into the mud by trying to squeeze himself into any sort of tight black leather number. That job had been given to Louise. She would no doubt look rather fetching in an outfit like that. How she was going to carry off some of the more virginal outfits, though, was a matter of some conjecture. Still, he enjoyed conjecturing about Louise. Now she was actually sixteen, he did, anyway. She would have to be a damn good actress, that was all. As for Humphrey, the male lead was bad enough. Danny Zuko. Thick as a couple of bits of old 2 by 4 he was. The school casting director had done a rather splendid job there, alright. But that was not exactly something to have written home about. The production was due to run for five nights, and Humphrey had been on and on and on at his father to please clear a hole in his diary, to please come and see him. He was pathetic, really, and Michael had jolly well told him so. He was scheduled to be away for that entire week anyway, and even if he hadn't been, the prospect of sitting on a plastic chair for two hours, drinking tea out of a polystyrene cup, and having to make polite small talk with that wretched man Evans was highly unprepossessing, to say the least. In fact, only the mental image of Louise in that tight black leather number caused him even the slightest feelings of regret. He felt no other guilt. He wouldn't be there and that was that. No guilt. And yet, still Humphrey had gone on. And on. And on. In the end, there really had been only one course of action available. Michael couldn't seem to be able to get rid of him and he couldn't seem to be able to get through to him. And the young fool obviously had no intention of taking no for his final answer. He would just have to beat him, that was all. Particularly the impertinent little fellow's backside. It was the same old, same old. Michael and Humphrey, man to man. One slightly more of a man than the other. And the presence of the Cerise leg warmers on one of them did not necessarily betray the identity of which was which. Bend over, boy. Why's that then, sir? Michael was already taking off his belt. A more obtuse question could scarcely have even been possible. That, sir, is going to cost you another one, boy. Humphrey reflected upon that rather unique sales pitch. It did seem to have one or two flaws in it, as far as he could see. Oh, dear, sir. I'm so sorry, sir. I didn't mean to call you sir, sir. So sorry, sir. He looked him in the eye for the whole of that insolence as well, the little bastard. Bend over. Now. I don't think so. Sir. Michael had lost count of the extra belts he was going to have to administer. Half a dozen, was it? More? He was so angry now he would probably find it impossible to stop hitting him. Humphrey would win then. He would have his time and he would have his attention. All the more reason to get the hell out of there. Yes, that would be far more sensible. To leave the scene entirely. The only thing was, Humphrey might just then get the impression that he'd won. And he could stuff that. Boy, if you don't bend over, I am going to do something you will regret. That had obviously baffled his mentally feeble son. Something he would regret. Do what you like, sir. I'm not bending. With that, and with considerable personal restraint, Michael grabbed his wallet and his car keys and headed for the door. Humphrey's face had been a picture, wearing as it had been the sudden realisation that he'd finally pushed his father too far, but not in the direction he wanted him to go. Sir! Michael looked back. There, bent over by the window, was his son. The senior contestant realised he was still clutching that belt, doubled over and awaiting its further instructions. What should he do? The boy wanted his time, that was plain. He wanted his attention, that was clear. But not this way, surely. There had to be better ways, more normal ways. There was time to go to the pictures. There was time to go to the pub. Humphrey was too young to be legally served anything decent, but those leg warmers did add a certain Jane Fonda maturity to his appearance. The landlord might just be fooled. They could spend quality time together, laughing and joking and talking about, well, that was the thing, what in hell, would they be able to talk about? They had nothing in common, nothing whatsoever. Even this, this ritual of manipulation and power, was all Humphrey's game. He controlled it, he initiated it time and time again. He was there now, waiting, ready to spend time with his father at any cost to his dignity. He closed the door gently. Chapter 4 Humphrey said goodbye for the umpteenth time and attempted to put the receiver down for the umpteenth time. He'd started the whole manoeuvre about five minutes previously, from a fairly erect position behind his desk. With each goodbye since then he'd found himself and his receiver, as one, moving ever closer to the desk. By the time he convinced the caller to actually reciprocate and get the hell off the line, His head was practically touching the table. It did seem a pity to waste such a golden opportunity for a kip, so he closed his eyes and prepared himself for the long haul. He couldn't sleep at home. There was an incessant dripping from his bathroom tap, which was annoying enough on its own, but it also meant he was doomed to visit the toilet at least half a dozen times during the hours of darkness. No bladder control, that figured. There didn't seem to be a single body part between his navel and his knees that he did have total control over. Anybody else might have complained to their landlord about the dripping. They might have created a fuss and demanded some action. Indeed, Humphrey had initially engaged in rather a lot of that sort of thing, keen on getting the attention of the disreputable property-developing tow-rag to whom his rent was paid at the end of every calendar month. Humphrey had already tried to complain about the woodworm. No, 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 no. Humphrey had already tried complaining about the woodworm, and the damp, and the electrics, and the response... A vague murmur of sympathy from one of his father's team, followed by a visit from a variety of paid experts. But of his father, there was never a sign. That meant there was no satisfaction in even complaining. Much more exciting was the potential for storing up all those grumbles and gripes, and then doing something totally spectacular. His father would have to notice then. It was supposed to have been different. He must have believed wholeheartedly that it would be otherwise there was no justification for him ever moving into one of his father's properties. He'd asked for one of the more down-market ones in the portfolio. There seemed a much wider choice of those, plus the more unpleasant his enforced surroundings were, the more sympathy he should have been able to elicit for Manthia. He would have lived in a barn if Michael had had one available. That had been the original plan, to make her feel sorry for him and to have her begging him to come home, where he could carry on making her life a total misery. Thankfully, common sense had put a stop to those sorts of plans, at least for the time being. Michael had wanted to install him in one of his more impressive properties. Once he'd come to accept the fact that Humphrey had no intention of moving back home, that was. The younger man had seen right through that little notion almost immediately. It would have made his father look good, that was all. He could have assuaged his conscience very easily with the knowledge that Humphrey was living well. He could, in fact, have put him out of his mind for long periods just as he'd always been able to. Well, not ruddy likely. This whole thing was a two birds, one stone opportunity of a lifetime. Even when it came to the rent, Humphrey had won the battle. Michael had been most insistent there was no need for his son to pay any rent whatsoever. A nice, generous gesture? Or the act of a malicious moneybags who had no particular need of Humphrey's contribution to his coffers and he would rather have lived off the control such an act would have allowed him? Humphrey had used the catalogue of evidence from his own past experiences to draw his own conclusions. He was paying rent, and that was that. In fact, he was paying rather more than he'd been asked for, suspecting that there'd been a rather big discount which his father could subsequently then hold over him. He was no fool, not Humphrey. Fortunately, the financing for this act of one-upmanship had been made possible by the generosity of the owners of his office building, who had, rather magnanimously, Refused to take any rent for it whatsoever until he got himself back on his feet following his divorce. An impressive thing to do, and very much appreciated. There were some good people around then, people who were not just simply out for themselves. Michael would never have believed that. What a waste of a chance for a nap. His body was broken, but his mind was still active. That might have adequately described any one of his nocturnal encounters with Anthea. Gody, he Mister. He wondered where she and her sister might have gone to on their enforced trip away together. What was that film with Sidney Poitier, the one where he was handcuffed to someone he'd nothing in common with, but was forced to work with in order for them both to escape their wider problems? Footloose, was that it? No, that was an entirely different film. Not a very good one, as far as he could recollect. It was even worse than Greece. He'd been in that, in the school production. Back in the days where he'd dreamed of the limelight and the applause of an adoring public, it was a right pile of crap, as he recalled. The original script had been, anyway, before he convinced his teachers to let him have a bit of a go at rewriting it, purely to bring it more into the modern times. The whole premise of Sandy having to revamp her entire persona just to impress her those he intended may well have made for a nice Hollywood ending. But in the wider scheme of things, the plot was completely ridiculous. At the end of that film, the lady is asked to change everything about herself while John Travolta merely ditches his jacket for a rather trendy-looking cardigan. And then the audience is expected to believe they fly away into a happy life together. Beautifully romantic. And totally unbelievable. Where was the resentment? The female bitterness that she'd had to make all the sacrifices while the bloke just sat there and watched her? Humphrey's alternative script told it like it really was. Instead of a final scene aboard some sort of homemade chitty-chitty bang-bang, it was instead a blazing stand-up row between Danny and Sandy, which gave voice to everyone's problems quite brilliantly. She felt resentment towards him, his friends, and his habit of fixing old motorcars instead of spending time with her. And he needn't think she was going to be washing those filthy overalls for him either. Meanwhile, he felt under the thumb already, and she needn't think she was going anywhere out in public in that sort of outfit. It was great. It was real. Except that his version had at least seen Danny get a few words in. It was a bit unrealistic, that bit, perhaps. But Louise had made it real again by slapping him hard across the face. That had stemmed from a supposedly improvisational act in rehearsals that had been entirely her own idea. She could certainly pack a punch. There had been a surprising amount of frustration in it, that was for sure. The pressure of their O-levels, almost certainly. Michael would have hated the show. A bunch of young men in fancy dress and wigs being roundly applauded for their efforts. He'd have absolutely hated that he have been conspicuous by his disapproval. More to the point, Humphrey would have hated having him there. He'd known all that when he badgered him incessantly to try and get him there. Luckily, Michael had had far better things to do, and at least the young man had managed to spend ten minutes of quality time with him and his belt before he disappeared off to do them. Humphrey sat up again and then quickly got to his feet, the muscle memory of their altercation providing the necessary propulsion. That phone call. He was going to have to do something about that phone call. The fellow was certainly persuasive, and he seemed to have a great deal of difficulty in the concept of taking no to be any kind of acceptable answer. It would be interesting to see how he would fare with Anthea, adopting a stance like that. A right clash of the titans, that would be. Except that was probably intimating that she was fat. Wherever she was in the package holiday world, she was no doubt marking his card for that remark. Barney Bloody Adams. That had become his new name as far as Humphrey was concerned. Not hyphenated, nothing formal. He hadn't yet marched him off to change his moniker by deed poll or anything, but if he was going to have to keep fielding phone calls like that last one, that did seem quite an attractive idea. He would make absolutely sure they got their money's worth too. For the price of a Barney Bloody Adams, he could buy himself a Barney, hopelessly awful at most things, but now inexplicably popular with people who really ought to know bloody better Bloody Adams. God, what kind of initials would that give him? Perhaps he could paraphrase that little rant and ensure the initials of the words did actually spell something out, a product or a service of some kind. The advertising aspect of that could be tremendous. He was right in the middle of his cogitations when Eleanor and Ross appeared in his doorway. In fact, the sight of him actively cogitating had almost discouraged them from even coming in. Now, there was a decent little set of initials. Barney Adams ass appreciators. Bar. Not strictly accurate, though, given that they did appear to be leaders, not followers. They'd selected Barney from a rather moth-eaten worldwide flock, and they'd elevated him to a position of best in show, even if he was rather badly disguised mutton trying to pass himself off as lamb. At least that song had given him an air of ovine respectability. Sort of. Good morning, ladies. To what do I owe this very great pleasure? Mr. Lovewell, we would like some answers from you, wouldn't we, Ros? Ros nodded firmly. By the way, Barney isn't due in here in the next ten minutes, is he? Do you really think I'd be looking this cheerful if he were? The two ladies conferred for a moment. Humphrey moved away from them, just in case their deliberations found him guilty of being cheeky and involved swinging a weighted Gingham shopping bag in his direction. Who is that man, Mr Lovewell? What man's that? The man who's been sniffing around Barney, following him around town and spying on him. Well, what can I say? There's a lot of funny people about. How did you see this chap? Eleanor answered immediately, without even waiting for the irony to get its coat on. Because we were following him around town and spying on him ourselves. He's a shifty-looking devil, Mr Lovewell. Eyes too close together. That's always a sign. A sign of what? Humphrey surreptitiously massaged the bridge of his nose in an attempt to gauge whether he may or may not have fallen foul of this rather arbitrary criminal criterion himself. It was rather difficult to tell. The damage done on his wedding night by that Gideon Bible, flung with the strength and accuracy of Fatima Whitbread, had left his nose rather out of shape. "'It had at least matched his new wife's, "'which had been put severely out of joint. "'Do you know who he is, Mr Lovewell? "'Why was she rummaging around in that bag? "'Not a Gideon Bible, please. "'Ah, it was just a tissue. "Uh, "'Yes, as a matter of fact, "'I can tell you precisely who that man is.' "'He paused, "'with all the gravitas of Hercule Poirot "'about to reveal the murderer. "'He's a real show business agent, "'a professional.' Not like me, I only dabble really. I'm supposed to be a life coach, a friendly reassuring presence on the road through life's tribulations. His plans for Barney differ rather significantly from mine. Like waiting for Humphrey to do all the hard work and then steaming in to nab himself a nice ready-made little money spinner. Ros seemed singularly unimpressed. What sort of plans, Mr. Lovewell? Oh, you know, the usual things, fame, money, wall-to-wall hangers-on, no privacy, a loss of identity, and then ignominy and celebrity oblivion. Just the sort of things Barney's been aspiring to for years, as a matter of fact. Eleanor frowned. Did that little snippet of Barney's true character square with everything else they had managed as a group to glean about him? That song did speak loudly in those sorts of volumes, although there was some debate as to whether Barney advocated promiscuity or whether each rallying cry for girls was to enable him to choose one particularly good one and treat her like his queen. His autograph, purloined from Humphrey in that very room and subsequently subjected to every graphological assessment in the business, did give the impression of a rather more sensitive soul than the picture his manager was trying to scribble down for them. All in all, it was quite obvious that Humphrey had got completely the wrong end of the stick. You simply can't allow him to do any of that, Mr Lovewell, It will be the ruin of him. Humphrey smiled gently at her. As a matter of fact, Eleanor, I happen to agree with you, but there's not very much I can do about it. You can stop him. No, no, I can't. There's no contract. The two ladies gave each other a reprise of that look he remembered so vividly from before. Perhaps they did have a right one here. Ross summed up the situation in one beautifully poetic turn of phrase. Bleed now, we're screwed. Shakespeare himself could hardly have done better. And it was probably a fairly astute observation too. How could you never have made him sign a contract? Well, I just never seemed to be able to get around to it. Even when he was forking out the readies to glaziers and structural engineers left, right and centre, he hadn't been too bothered about a contract. They weren't worth the paper they were written on. He still maintained that. And he still believed they contributed to an unhealthy distrust between two otherwise friendly parties. All the same, he was going to look a bit of a fool now, right enough. Barney could become a global phenomenon, and Humphrey would have nothing to show for it but his memories. And his tinnitus, so at least he would have something tangible. Oh, and the song he'd given the dose of the Alan J. Learners to. Highly fitting, that, given the new low their professional partnership was looking at before he'd whipped out his somewhat licentious libretto. In any case, he'll never sign one now, His head will have been turned by talk of fame and fortune and forty-inch-chested floozies by now. Better just to let him get on with it. I'll be here to pick up the pieces, though, I'm sure. Eleanor mulled over the problem. Can't you forge one? Beg pardon? Oh, did I say forge? I I meant create. Can't you, though? How do you mean? Forge his signature? Yes. Can't be that difficult, surely? No, it certainly wasn't that difficult. Humphrey had already forged the autograph the two of them held in their possession. It had seemed like quite a harmless thing to do at the time. He couldn't forge a contract though. He hadn't even organised the putting together of one to sign. Plus, he only knew one lawyer well enough to even consult about such things, and he would be sailing the ocean waves for another five days yet. And he couldn't be trusted anyway, as he'd proved unequivocally during the divorce. Blimey, Michael would have had 40 fits if he knew Humphrey was running his business affairs like this, which did seem like a good reason to continue in the same vein. Mind you, perhaps it wouldn't hurt to sign a couple of blank pieces of paper, just as an insurance policy, with the rest of the details to follow on at a later date. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time you've lied with regard to his career. Humphrey found something utterly fascinating about the sole of his shoe, and then those holes in his carpet. Anything rather than look either one of the ladies in the eye at that point. They knew about the autograph. They must have done. Or the song. It could have been that. Maybe it was the photo shoot for that magazine. They may well have figured out that the images had been airbrushed ever so slightly. It had been essential though, in order to remove all traces of the teeth marks. And the photographer hadn't even been a woman. The boy was destined for big things, no question. Not in any kind of way that Humphrey would have actively encouraged, but who was to say he was right about anything? He never had been when he was married. Why should things have changed so dramatically since then? He'd run out of interesting things to distract him now. Oh, hell. That article, Mr Lovewell. So it was those pictures. Fair enough. He would answer all relevant questions with complete honesty and he would take full responsibility for all consequences. He would take his punishment like a man, just as always. Unless by some miracle there was a sudden earthquake or some such natural disaster which might allow him to escape the scene amidst all the confusion. The photographs... Yes? No, not the photographs. Delightful as they undoubtedly are. Too right they were. Ros had bought over a hundred copies of the publication, displaying them carefully around her house. She'd planned the operation meticulously, the key factor being that she must never be more than three feet away from Barney's motivational message. Eleanor had confined herself to a mere half-dozen copies, but then she only had her pension to play with, and a husband who had no idea that she was off at these bar meetings all the time. He thought she was at Alcoholics Anonymous. Not that being an appreciator of Barney was in any way embarrassing. She would have yelled her allegiances from the rooftops if she could have been certain that her husband wouldn't find out about it. She didn't want him to assume that she thought more of Barney than she did of him and that she found Barney much more attractive than she found him. That was all. It was highly likely that she did on both counts but there was no reason for her other half to know that. Blissful ignorance was a residential area that was highly underrated for some people. We know, Mr. Lovewell, that article featuring Sandra's sister. We know. Do you indeed? Well, then perhaps you wouldn't mind telling me. No offence, you understand, but that article was clearly in no way written about you. How do you know that? Stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, you haven't got the bill for it. Well, I don't know where, or indeed who, you got your information from, but I'm not going to argue with you. They were spot on, obviously. They couldn't have based their conclusions on anything Sandra had contributed, though. Sandra would have been given a proof copy of the fictional story in verbatim installments over a period of the last 12 or so years, because anything less than that story would have left Anthea looking as though she'd been desperate when she married him and almost permanently frustrated ever since, which would probably have been rather accurate in the grand scheme of things, but no good at all in her eternal fight to get one over on Sandra. The question is, who is this man of which your ex-wife speaks? Well, he's not really a man of any sort. He's my ex-wife's perfect man. So, by definition, he couldn't possibly be a man. That's one of the reasons why I always fancied my chances. He sat in silent contemplation for a moment. Rose decided to move the conversation along at a much more agreeable pace. She was considering visiting her own office with a new cardigan that afternoon. And if she didn't get cracking, she would miss any potential pre-lunch treats that might be going. I'm going to hypothesise a little something for you, all right? I put it to you that that article is based not on you at all, but on Barney Adams himself. I suggest that you wanted to get the pertinent details of how amazing he is into the public arena, but you didn't want to upset us. So you hid the relevant information in plain sight and took all the credit for it under your own name. Am I right? She was an intimidating woman all right. You wouldn't have fancied arguing with her about a council tax rebate or planning permission for a new extension. Humphrey analysed her words. It was better placed than most to be able to derive something vaguely sensible from them, thanks to his years of diligent female study. What she was suggesting was a fabrication in itself, but the sentiment went a lot deeper. She really wanted to believe it. It legitimised them, gave them credit for their considerable perspicacity in spotting and appreciating Barney before anybody else had. That's incredible. You saw right through me. Well, it wasn't very difficult, she obviously couldn't have been talking about you. Charming. Do something nice to help a woman, and that was the thanks you got. Although I would have thought Sandra would have told you that it wasn't rubbish, given that she does have occasion to speak with my former wife. Eleanor and Rose shared a knowing look. It was a sort of look that might have indicated that they knew something vital about the meaning of life, or simply that they'd both seen the cliffhanger from the latest episode of Coronation Street. It did not necessarily indicate disapproval of Sandra's recent pastimes, more a kind of underlying resentment. Eleanor gave her feelings for the woman full voice. She hasn't been with us very much of late. Her priorities have become slightly rearranged, along with various other things. Humphrey nodded knowingly, believing that he knew what their own knowing look had been about. Little did he know he did not know. Little did he know about anything, in fact. Whereabouts is she now, then? On a beach in Alicante, or propping up a bar in Barcelona? There it was again, that look. The one that cast severe non-verbal doubts upon him having a receipt for his full allocation of marbles. She's propped up outside here, as a matter of fact. She can't walk very well at the moment. Her wheelchair is a puncture. And there was no way we were going to pick her up and carry her in here like some kind of Aunt Sally. Humphrey's first reaction was disbelief. Then, when he approached the window and actually saw his former sister-in-law for himself, his disbelief quickly turned to panic. Where in the name of God was Anthea? Her shop was closed until at least the middle of the following week. He knew that. He'd seen the sign on the door when he went past to see if she was just playing a game of double bluff with him. It was always possible with a woman like her. She could tell you one thing absolutely unequivocally, and yet it would be a veritable pack of lies. And she would blame you for not being able to decipher her cry for help or support or a therapeutically calorific large hot chocolate with vegetarian marshmallows. She could very well have been ensconced inside there waiting for Humphrey to rescue her. Lord that was a scary thought but at least you would have known where she was. Anthea scrutinised the rest of the day's organised activities with only a modicum of enthusiasm. Shuffleboard classes, the opportunity to learn the tango. There was even a talk from one of the designers of the Stannis stairlift. Surely that bloke had put in an appearance yesterday, hadn't he? Oh well, perhaps his target audience was the type to have long since abandoned that newfangled thing called the short-term memory in favour of support stockings, false teeth and the nearest OAP early bird dinner. In any case, Anthea could always catch the televised version of that riveting monologue later on. Probably while she was lying on her bed, scoffing victuals from the room service menu and getting drunk on the finest wines and liqueurs her steward could bring her. He was a very charming chap, her steward. Pablo. Much more exotic than John, or Jim, or whatever the hell his name was. Anthea had been under virtual house arrest ever since she broke broken a date with that bloke. The ship was the size of a fleet of buses, but you could bet your life she would run into him within five minutes of setting foot outside of her cabin. Never mind. She had a balcony. She could enjoy the rain and the wind in luxurious surroundings without ever having to leave. She wanted to go dancing. She really did. It was absolutely impossible. It was the thing she would really have loved to have done: to glide across the dance floor, firmly attached to a hairy-chested, tall man in spangles and tight satin trousers, to run her fingers over his whole body, purely in the interest of come-dancing authenticity before finally having them come to rest on the seat of those tight, satin trousers. She was developing quite a little bum fixation, actually. Not any one particular bum, in fact, no bum she'd ever been in close proximity to, which went double for Humphrey, who qualified through both ownership and character reference. The catalyst for it all must have been that bloke that Sandra liked so much. Anthea would dearly have liked to dance with him right in front of her, with a tight hold of both cheeks for good measure. That would show her. Aren't you supposed to be on holiday with Anthea? Where is she? Is everything all right? Sandra looked exceptionally uncomfortable. She'd lost weight since the last time he'd seen her, too. He realised that he was standing within touching distance of her and quickly jumped back. Anthea wouldn't like it if he stood too close to her sister. She would most probably leap out from her temporary hiding place and accuse the pair of them of some long-standing affair. Then again, at least it would smoke his ex-wife out. He took the original step back towards her and then added another very little one, all the time looking around him. There was no sign of her. Where on earth was she? At that moment, he could have happily accepted that she was anywhere in space and time, with absolutely anyone from fact or fiction, and doing anything from the very worst excesses of the average imagination. It was the not knowing what she was doing, that was the thing. On a more urgent note... It was the not bloody knowing where she was. Oh, I know I said I'd go with her, but my husband was home, and then... Well, look, I could stand here all day and give you a ton of excuses, but there's very little point in that. The fact of the matter is, I couldn't be bothered, OK? Humphrey looked at her in amusement. Who, in their right mind, would ever turn down a platonic week and a half, sharing a room with Anthea? And he still had no idea where that room even was. He felt a surge of genuine sympathy for his former spouse. This holiday had been her way of showing him how she could cope on her own and without him. That had all been spelled out in various shades of neon as far as he was concerned. And she'd been intending to show him how well she could cope without him by dragging her sister away with her. These past few days had seen Humphrey relaxed and even happy, believing, as he had done, that Anthea was in the company of someone who would cheerfully give her an argument whenever one was required but he would also hold her hand throughout any necessary but unpleasant dealings with other people. And now it transpired that his happiness had been entirely misplaced. Worse, it had flown right in the face of Anthea's inevitable discomfort. Suicidal. That was a better name for a foolhardy approach like that. She went on her own without you. That's amazing. Sandra hesitated slightly. Well, I didn't actually tell her I wasn't coming with her until the morning we were supposed to leave. And I left it quite late even then. I wanted to make sure she wasn't going to cancel herself, you see. That was very kind of you. No, it wasn't really. But I wanted to make sure she was on the boat herself before I told her. Boat? A trip down the Broads, was this? Or a spell on the Isle of Wight? Where the hell was his ex-wife? And I may not have actually told her I wasn't coming along even then. I can't really remember. I was a bit busy at the time. I mean, I was quite out of breath while I was speaking with her. I suppose it's quite possible she may have assumed I was hearing along the quayside with my cases. Well, where is she now? Sandra checked her watch. I should say she's moored just outside Liverpool at the moment. Humphrey's baffled expression asked its own questions. We were supposed to be on a cruise around the British Isles, H. Didn't she tell you? No. She told me she was better off without me, that she didn't need me in her life, that she regretted every day she'd ever spent with me and that I was the cause of every one of her multiple disappointments. Beyond that, she was rather sketchy with the details. Wait a minute, a cruise? That was two people now and what should have been three, all on cruises at the same time. That was one hell of a coincidence. So many questions were popping into his head that he was going to have to initiate a ticketing system of some description to prevent himself from being buried under the weight of them. Is that the same cruise my father's on? Sandra shrugged her shoulders, wincing ever so slightly as she did so. Where was the brochure that Michael had left behind? Had he checked it out yet? No, that's right, he'd used it to steady that wonky table leg. He could see it plain as day through his office window. Right, that would give him a few answers. Rose and Eleanor had gone off to do a spot of investigative journalism with regard to Barney's prospective new manager, so at least Humphrey would be able to get the lowdown on the latest awful developments there. Sandra declined his offer of a cup of tea inside, with the excuse that she'd spent so long confined to the house recently that she was glad of the chance of some fresh air. She promised not to move, though, until he'd had a chance to check out that brochure. Or until Ros and Eleanor came back to help her, whichever was sooner. Anthea was beginning to get rather stir-crazy, too. The city of Liverpool held no particular appeal for her. there was a very good chance that John, or Jim, or whatever the hell his name was, had taken advantage of a tour around Anfield, or a ferry across the Mersey. With fewer people aboard, she might find it easier to blend in. That was contrary to the logic employed by most people, but then Anthea was most certainly not most people, not by any definition. She collected together the essentials of a person with no interest in socialising. Her Miss Marple collection, her dark glasses, and the only magazine she had in her possession that was still essentially unread. It was her sole surviving copy of that trash mag, which she had sanitised significantly by completely ripping out that damn article and then dumping it overboard under cover of darkness. Sufficient time had passed now since the thing had presented itself and her for public ridicule. She was last fortnight's news now, she hoped, and with no evidence left, she could deny absolutely everything about it. She gathered together the essentials of a person with absolutely no interest in swimming, a hat, a coat, her room key card and the ship's cocktail menu, and departed in the direction of the pool. She put her little earphones in on her walk to the lift, and that was all she did. There was no turning anything on. She would have had to have stuck a few batteries in the thing first, and that would mean that she couldn't then hear any of the nasty things that random people might want to say about her. There was, even she had to grudgingly admit, a slight chance that they may want to say something complimentary about her. But even if they did, it would be such a rare event in her perpetually disappointing existence that she would have to hear it for herself in order to believe it. And she probably wouldn't believe it, even then. Her trip in the lift was difficult. For reasons which seemed to defy all logic, the designers of this vessel had decided to put mirrors in the most extraordinary of places. The lifts. That was one of the more bizarre ones. She had this particular one entirely to herself, all four dozen of her. In fact if she leaned her head in the right direction she could see herself becoming infinitesimally smaller and disappearing into the distance. They all looked miserable. They made her feel more miserable. How dare they do that to her? She tried to imagine the consequences if one of her customers tried to mooch about like that. She'd have them smiling quick, smart, out of pure terror, that was for sure. She looked the nearest reflection straight in the eyes and defied it to smile at her. Slowly, very slowly, her facial muscles creaked into action. The result, while not the sort of Richter's grin that would ever have advertised a dental clinic, was really a rather pleasant surprise. Wherever she looked, she saw a smiling, happy face. And it was her own! Her own! That lift may as well have been the gateway to a parallel universe. She got out at deck 10 and made her way over to the sun loungers. There was a glass roof to the pool area, which did allow some sunshine in there. Enough for her to be able to justify the hat and the shades at any rate. The barman was upon her in an instant. God, if only. Although their combined weight would probably do for the sun lounger. Her own combined weight might very well do that anyway. He was tall, he was handsome and he didn't seem to speak too much English. He was also going to bring her drinks on a regular basis as well. Could he be any more perfect? A very small vocabulary, but with huge prospects. He would need a very large sexual appetite too, of course. Yes, perhaps if he couldn't speak any English at all, it might be to her advantage. Well, in that case, she may as well go the whole hog and wish that he couldn't speak at all. Wow. How long has she just spent sitting there, dwelling on things like that? Men, the power they had, even by doing absolutely nothing. Thank goodness most of them were too daft to even realise it. She watched the barman deftly shaking her cocktail. You know, he really wasn't her type at all. Apart from the fact he had hold of a whole week's recommended alcohol units with her name on them. She opened her magazine and skimmed through the list of contents mentally hurdling the introduction to that stupid article which she'd all but managed to obliterate with a black felt-tip pen. What was her type then? Did she even know? Her marriage had been perched precariously at the summit of its own slippery slope for yonks but she hadn't really thought about any alternatives. She was even still wearing her wedding and engagement rings for heaven's sake. Although that might not be such a bad thing. It would have to deter John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. It was funny that it hadn't deterred him enough the other night to prevent him from wanting to see her again. Then again, he'd been so preoccupied with the sound of his own voice that it was debatable whether he'd actually noticed anything. Even if he had noticed, what then? Would she have denied all knowledge of her former husband? Or would she have hidden behind him, just like always? A wave of regret headed straight for her. There was no time to pick up a beach towel and do a runner. She was going to have to ride the emotion like the old Spice Man from years before. And that wasn't a very clever reminiscence either, because that scent had been one of her ex-husband's favourites. She'd even bought a bottle for herself since the divorce, although she was not prepared to even consider the reason why. A snapshot of Humphrey's happy, smiling face washed into her mind like a piece of flotsam. He was always so relentlessly cheerful for no obvious reason, to the point where it could really become quite depressing. He had nothing to be happy about, not as far as she could see. Mind you, he had a lot more to look forward to now, now he'd finally seen sense and rid himself of her. Mrs. Lovewell? Anthea lowered the magazine slightly. I'm so sorry, I'm not disturbing you, am I? She took the purely decorative earphones from her ears. Will you speak to me? The ship's entertainment director smiled apologetically at her. I'm so sorry to disturb you. How are you enjoying the cruise? That was a funny question. It was the sort of question that didn't sound like it was supposed to be answered with any honesty. It's certainly different. I've been meaning to have a little chat with you, actually. Terrific. She probably needed another player for her whist drive or for a marathon session of dominoes or something. Oh, is that your magazine? May I? Anthea watched with growing alarm as Louise picked up the aforementioned publication and began to casually flick through it. She hesitated noticeably upon reaching the missing pages. She glanced up at Anthea, who hurriedly looked away. I love this magazine, don't you? I read it whenever I can. The words hung heavily in the air. This one must be a London edition or something. It's not quite the same as the one I saw. Louise smiled at her again. She knew... Of that, there was absolutely no doubt. But so what? She must have seen everything aboard these cruises. She might be able to fully appreciate Anthea's side of the story. It was a risk, but it might be worth it. Before she could say anything, though, Louise continued her musings. This one's missing a very good story. You've been shortchanged. It's very romantic and quite tragic in a way. Yes, I know. I ripped it out. It was a load of old cobbler's. Oh, I don't know. Gives us single women hope that there are at least some decent men out there. Well, he wasn't that decent. He divorced me. Her. Louise looked at her mysteriously. It was a very strange look, and it did little to make her feel any more comfortable about this particular line of questioning. Really? I thought it was the other way round. He was divorced by you. Her. Anthea decided that now would be an absolutely perfect time to attract that monosyllabic barman back over for a discussion in Franglais about her next alcoholic thirst quencher. Sadly, he was engaged in a similar conversation already with another lady. Typical that. Men. You couldn't trust any of them. What's he like? I mean, really? Anthea removed her glasses and stared at Louise. Well, you read the article. It rather speaks for itself, I should think. And in any case, what the hell was it to her? Yes. Yes, I suppose it does. It's really rather fantastic. Was that the sort of fantastic that went along with finding a golden ticket that would get you a lifetime supply of chocolate? Or the sort of fantastic that would more accurately have described the rate at which Anthea's moustache kept relentlessly reappearing? You're questioning some of the details? No! Not at all. I just find them all rather fascinating, that's all. He sounds like a man in a million. Anthea didn't like the tone of this line of inquiry either. Can you satisfy my curiosity on just one thing then? Anthea scrutinised her companion icily. You're not having his phone number. Louise chewed the inside of her cheek thoughtfully. That article had come as a complete surprise to her. Imagine... One moment she was browsing through the pages on her way to the horoscopes and the next she'd seen Humphrey's name. If it was the right Humphrey. The name was his and his age was right but the age of his wife was a mathematical impossibility despite the woman having the right first name. And if it was the right Humphrey Louise had actually seen the face of the woman who had stolen him from her all those years ago. The woman she was talking to right now. The woman who had divorced him and had quite possibly broken his heart. Any feelings of guilt she may have felt for steering him in the direction of those handcuffs and that salad and for trying to derail their whole relationship all those years ago had obviously been entirely misplaced. The question still remained, though. Was it her Humphrey? No, I don't need his telephone number. I was just wondering. He didn't compensate for any of this masculinity by wearing women's underwear by any chance, did he? That's a very strange question to ask. Not really. I mean, nobody can be that macho. Stands to reason. Anthea's suspicions as to the nature of Louise's interrogations were somewhat tempered by the knowledge that she was, of course, absolutely right. In reality, nobody could be that masculine, which was partly the reason for her misguided foray into the world of fiction in the first place. I'll answer your questions if you answer one of mine. Louise clasped her right hand firmly behind her back, Fingers crossed and ready for absolutely anything. And my question is, why are you asking me these questions? So, she wouldn't answer any of the questions Louise had asked her until Louise could explain why she was asking them. A genuine Catch-22 situation, that was. It must have been her, Humphrey. He'd always appeared to be a seething mass of contradictions. There was nothing she'd read in that article that she would ever, in a millennium's worth of years, have put past him. It was what was not being said in it. That was where the real answers lay. She decided to massage the truth ever so slightly. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I was just comparing your ex-husband to my old boyfriend. To be perfectly frank, I was just trying to gauge which one was the more normal. Anthea sat up at the sound of the word normal. She was friendless and she was shy, and she had no access to normality on a day-to-day basis. Oh, She could get a vague idea of what she was missing out on, based on other people's perceived normality. In that way, she could compare it to her own very dull reality, but there was almost no way of becoming part of normal life, not for a woman like her. Sandra's marriage was like something from the pages of Penthouse, and her own parents had been so close that the two girls have felt like interlopers in their dynamic. That was all she knew. That was normal. She'd obviously over-egged her own fictional pudding in some respects, but she could hardly be blamed for that. She'd clearly crossed a fine line somewhere, though. So what in hell was normal? Louise was just as baffled, approaching her own inquiries armed with a long list of rather disappointing former conquests and her own rather biased perception of her original ideal man. The sort of man who would wear matching stockings and suspenders by night while saving her from brutal punishment by day. An enigma? A mystery? A myth? I want to know one thing. Just from my own point of reference, I have to know one thing. Is he really like that in bed? All those sleepless nights spent listening to a variety of female moans and groans next door to her might have suggested that he was, but there was something about that article that just didn't ring true at all. She'd always imagined him as a selfless, generous lover, Someone who would take his time over things for the maximum pleasure of his partner. Someone who would devote his entire attentions to making that woman feel like the sexiest woman in the world. Oh, it was hot by that pool. Wasn't it hot by that pool? It was so hot by that pool. The exclamation marks after Louise's query about Humphrey's lovemaking skills could have looped the deck twice over, which Anthea found rather offensive. The very idea that she would have lumbered herself with somebody infinitely substandard in the bedroom department was an insult. All right, it was true, but there was no good reason in the world why this woman should ever know that. In any case, possession was nine-tenths of the law, and she intended to make that work to her fullest advantage, even if it had only ever been more of a vacant possession. My husband was sex on legs. Really. Absolutely. His last legs, but she was not about to even begin to admit that. So why did you get divorced then, if you don't mind me asking? Anthea opened her mouth to reply to that, but then realised that she really didn't have a reasonable answer. Indeed, at that moment, it did seem like a bloody good question. Louise looked at her sideways. It would probably have been described as being an old-fashioned look, had the very use of that phrase not made Anthea seem even more ancient. They were about the same age, the two women. Louise's face was caked in make-up, which made her look older. Anthea almost never bothered with makeup; Her visage and its appearance were no concern of hers, and any overhaul of it would benefit nobody but the poor unfortunates who were stuck with them to look at her. Humphrey had complimented her time and time again on her natural beauty. Or rather, he'd tried to. Anthea didn't do compliments, of course, and in that particular case, she definitely wouldn't have accepted that comment as being an honest one given the patently ridiculous nature of it. Still, he had tried. The brochure was a glossy and impressive affair. The prices were impressive too, in their own mind-boggling sort of way. Humphrey couldn't quite imagine how either Michael or Anthea had ended up on that cruise. His father could obviously have afforded it, that wasn't the problem. And in terms of being flashy, it was absolutely perfect. But the man was a self-obsessed workaholic. The only relaxation he'd ever been known to get involved with was a round of golf occasionally, and even that was only ever a cover for networking or showing off. According to the brochure, there was some sort of on-deck driving range, but it didn't really seem sufficient to be able to hold the interest of a person like him. As for Anthea, the mystery deepened even further. It was totally out of character for her to have taken herself off on a trip alone anywhere at all. Sandra's presence would have given it some degree of believability, but he could see her propped up outside like some kind of urban scarecrow. That was a pretty accurate description, actually, given the tracksuit and trainers she had decided to throw on. Obviously her husband wasn't around then. The coincidence of both antagonists from his divorce proceedings, both being on the same cruise together, was odd, but nothing to worry about in itself. After all, Sandra had been meant to share a cabin with Anthea, eliminating all potential for anything unsavoury if he... After all, Sandra had been planned to share a cabin with Anthea, eliminating all potential for anything unsavoury to have been planned with his father. They would be on different decks and their paths would more than likely never even cross. Anthea was as likely to go and pick up a five-iron as Michael was to learn the Paso play. He tried to imagine his former wife dancing one of those with the captain and dining at his table every evening, holding the crew in thrall with her grace, her poise and her elegance. He tried to imagine her sitting at the bar nursing a pina colada while a succession of smitten men tried and failed to impress her with their wit and charm. She could definitely have done it. She had the build for it. What she lacked, in every way, was the self-confidence. He had an awful feeling her holiday would merely end up being a more expensive extension of her everyday existence. Not for her the glamour and excitement of mixing with new people and holding interesting and stimulating conversations. If she balked it all out on her own territory, she was highly unlikely to find it any easier in the middle of an artificial environment. What if she was sitting there now, gazing up at the liver birds, having changed all of her short-term surroundings, yet still finding herself miserable beyond her own comprehension? She might be reaching the inevitable conclusion that her misery was, in quite a large part, entirely down to her. That wasn't the sort of thing she ought to be having to face up to alone. And the fact she potentially was would obviously be his fault. She'd gone to him for help and advice. That is to say, she'd gone to him in the anticipation that he would tell her to do precisely what she'd already decided to do. But significantly, it would then be his fault. If things went wrong. Which they more than likely had done. According to her, he was responsible for everything that was bad, evil, or thoroughly corrupt anywhere in the known universe. More to the point, as far as he was aware unless there was some sort of alien equivalent to him, who could somehow miraculously pick up the baton of blame at the furthest reaches of that universe, he was responsible for everything that was bad, evil or thoroughly corrupt in all of space and time. Well, at least he could claim to be useful. And how many other men could ever really say that? She was going to hold him personally responsible for things going wrong, though. That was almost a given. And he didn't much fancy the sound of that. He was going to have to do something. His options were dragged reluctantly from their various mental hiding places. He could call her and see how she was, but then if she was indeed having a rubbish time of it, she could take it all out on him and hopefully make herself feel better. No, that was a rubbish idea. Supposing he got through to her cabin and another man answered the phone, or even, heaven forbid, Michael. Humphrey was not a jealous man by any means, but there were limits to the levels of his placidity. In any case, he would probably feel compelled to offer any successors the wisdom of his years of experience and perhaps even run through a quick prayer or something with them. Unless his replacement was Michael, in which case he could get thoroughly stuffed. No, he couldn't call her. What about calling Jeremiah and asking him to give a bit of an eye on her? It might mean him having to get rather up close and personal to her, but he'd never be able to even see her otherwise. Who was he kidding? Jeremiah wouldn't be able to hear the telling bone ringing, and even if he did, he'd be too busy trying to work out the source of its magical powers to have time to talk to Humphrey. He could always try to get a message to his ersatz Warmington and Sea platoon. They could take it in turns to keep an eye on her. Except, what good would that do? Humphrey knew very well what they would report back to him, and the act of cluing him in on things would simply make him an accessory to her misery after the fact. The ship was in Liverpool until that evening and would only make three more stops around the coast before dropping its final anchor back in Southampton in five days' time. He considered for a moment the possibility of somehow taking Sandra's place in Anthea's cabin, but discounted the idea just as quickly for so many reasons that he could still have been there in five days' time, simply counting them all. It had to be Sandra herself. The tracksuit and trainers definitely seemed to indicate that her husband had once more departed the time zone, so she had very little excuse. Her name was already on the passenger list, too. So it wasn't as though it was going to cost anything. All he had to do was get her to the appropriate port. After he convinced her that she wanted to go at all, of course. And that looked like being easier said than done. Clearly the lure of half a week of luxury, all reasonable expenses paid, was being fiercely resisted by the idea of spending any time whatsoever with Anthea. Humphrey was magnanimous enough to be able to at least half understand that argument. But in that case, was there anything short of a successful kidnap attempt, that we get Sandra onto that ship. I'm going to push off now, H, if that's all right. Ross just rang with a position report on Barney and I haven't seen him for a bit. Christ knows how long it's going to take me to get down there. If you don't mind. He grinned at her. That was his screensaver expression, purely for appearances, while the real work went on behind the scenes. Barney. Yes. Yes. This woman would do absolutely anything for the chance not to meet him. Because actually meeting him would somehow shatter most of her illusions. Yes! She was going to take her rightful place alongside Anthea on that ship, or be forced to meet Barney. And if she wasn't careful, Humphrey would get him to sing to her as well. That would shatter her illusions, her windows, you name it. But that was barbaric, surely. Especially with regard to the warbling. Plus it might just backfire. She might be even less inclined to want to set sail with her sister if the object of all of her lustful desires was landlocked and parked on her settee. If only the settee could be loaded on with her in Liverpool, Barney and all. This was becoming like a travel channel version of the old lady who swallowed a fly, because if Barney was going, then Humphrey himself would definitely have to. But how on earth was he going to achieve any of this before the thing left Liverpool in a few hours' time? Chocolate. Problems always seem far less daunting when considered in the company of a great big lump of chocolate. Something he could share. Something tempting. Now then, what did he have in his drawers for Sandra? her, Sandra. She hesitated before slowly holding her hand out. You won't tell Anthea you gave me one, will you? Dear Anthea, I've just given your sister one. No, I don't think so. I mean to say you know how jealous she gets. An understatement, if ever there was one. Humphrey had been accused of flirting with everyone, from the postwoman to their 95-year-old next-door neighbour. And what was more, he had been flirting with them. He enjoyed giving ladies compliments. He would have loved more than anything to have given his wife a really memorable one. And a few compliments as well come to that. But she never seemed to be prepared to trust him to do things his way. He could charm every other woman under the sun. So why not his blasted ex-wife? Did they tell you where Barney actually is? Yes, he's with that bloke. I see. Probably selling his soul to him in return for a couple of big-boobed bimbos. There Humphrey was, trying to factor him into his dastardly equations, and all the time the boy was doubtless already somebody else's bloody responsibility. Somebody else could pay his insurance premiums and manage his taxes then. Somebody else could worry whenever they heard an emergency vehicle siren and Barney's whereabouts were uncertain. Somebody else could rip him off and use his efforts to make them vast amounts of utterly undeserved money. And sod it. That somebody else was going to let Barney do him this one last favour first, before they both buggered off into the sunset. Whatever happened? Humphrey still had that song. The knowledge of that song. The song nobody even knew he'd written or recorded. He still had that. It was clambering up the charts in the most obscure places. Barney's new manager had a ready-made audience who, almost by definition, were not too flush in the good-taste department. He could embark on a world tour, purely on the basis of that one mind-to song. Fair play to him, if that was what he wanted. Humphrey had written it, and he'd sung it. But despite his propensity for ridiculous attention-seeking, he knew damn well that he himself could not have been bothered with any of that. Not where there was any kind of serious money involved. It was far too close to something Michael might have ultimately approved of for his liking. It did give him some leeway in all negotiations, however. Girls, Girls, Girls was a pile of musical excrement, but it was catchy and it was popular. It had value, however overrated that may have been. Chapter 5 The remarkable ease with which she had succeeded in conning her immediate line manager had surprised even Ros herself. Once Sandra had told her of Barney's plans for a short life on the ocean waves, there had been only one thought in Ros's mind, getting onto that boat herself. And that had proved remarkably easy. Indeed, it had been almost disappointing in its simplicity. The fact that it was a Friday may perhaps have had some bearing on matters. You could get almost anything agreed to in a council office on a Friday afternoon. They were all D mob happy down there on a Friday afternoon. They were all cream cakes and lattes down there on a Friday afternoon. Maybe it was the sugar high that had worked in her favour. Maybe she just lucked out in her choice of who to ask. Maybe, just maybe, the person she'd asked had in fact not been listening properly when they'd signed the authorisation papers. Whatever. What did she care? She was too busy packing her suitcase in advance of the taxi that would ferry her towards a first-class train ride to Liverpool. On the face of it, a last-minute five-day trip for two on a luxury cruise liner might seem a strange and rather expensive location for an ad-hoc meeting regarding waste in local government expenditure. The clue, however, was very much in the question. Local government, a game of very, very different rules, especially on a Friday. It was remarkably fortunate that there were still cabins available. The one she'd managed to procure seemed to be smaller than a hamster's cage, but that was only to be expected, and it would no doubt make the taxpayers proud that she was prepared to sacrifice all luxuries for their benefit, or her own. It was all pretty much the same thing. In any case, with a 24-hour free buffet, she was unlikely to be spending much time in it. She'd even managed to get Eleanor aboard, which was absolute testament to her negotiating skills. The pair of them were going to check out conditions aboard for old age pensioners, given that the price of her hamster's cage was still far cheaper than any of the care homes the local authority were responsible for. The food would be better too. She probably wouldn't tell Eleanor in so many words that she was to be the token guinea pig pensioner, however. She'd better stay as quiet as a mouse about that, otherwise, Eleanor would smell a rat. God, all these rodents. They probably should have got a bigger cabin. They would be getting a bigger cabin. Once she knew where Barney was going to be spending his nights, she was going to complain about her living conditions, bandy a bit of human rights legislation about, and reap the extra square footage as a reward. Sorted. After a sustained period of brainstorming, known in some circles as a nap, complete with rapid eye movements and snoring, Humphrey found himself in possession of the answer. It had been staring him in the face all along, with his early ideas about getting Jeremiah, a number one platoon, involved in his plans. He'd already managed to get them aboard, and they joined a veritable they-were-who of days-gone-by popular entertainment. Anyone who had ever been, but was no longer. They were all there. Even acts like the two had sent, involving people who'd never even been. The entertainment director was a woman. That was certainly interesting. Louise Lovewell. That was an interesting name, too. Perhaps a distant relation of some description. The poor cow. He hadn't dealt with her with regard to Cat Weasel & Co, that had gone through some rather more official channels. The question was, was Ms Lovewell a woman who had seen Barney's article in that magazine? Was she a woman who had heard that collaboration of theirs, and if she was, would she be interested in having the man himself, with all his lower half accoutrements, in her employ for an evening or two? If she was, then there was no other reason why Barney couldn't appear in that 70s and 80s revival. Born in 1985, the young man could remember nothing of either decade and had absolutely nothing whatsoever to revive, but that was not even relevant. The key to the whole matter would be each and every unfortunate member of his captive audience. Collectively, they would obviously not have the foggiest clue who this charlatan was, at least within the context of those particular decades. However, each and every one of them would be just that little bit fearful of being left out, and each and every one of them would presume they were the only ones who had never heard of him. The default human setting appeared to be an inbuilt desire to be part of whichever crowd happened to be the nearest, and that would simply be playing into Humphrey's hands in this case. From being virtually unknown by everyone to receiving the biggest cheer of the evening would take about four seconds, according to his estimations, and that was more than enough time to be able to get Barney's foot in the door. It would then be down to the pair of them to try to manoeuvre the rest of him in before that door slammed shut and left him crippled for life. It was a great pity that this looked like being the last engagement Humphrey would ever secure for his want-away star. Otherwise he could have chanced Barney's entertainment arm in as many other decades as they could realistically get away with. What was the likelihood of the boy being able to do the Charleston? Humphrey embraced his thoughts tightly one last time before sending them out alone into the potentially harsh world of reality. He picked up his telephone and began dialing. At least she had given it a try. Nobody could ever say that Anthea had made no attempt to mingle. The experience with Louise had greatly unnerved her, though. She'd been left with the distinct impression that the other woman knew a good bit more about her ex-husband than she'd been prepared to own up to. Very surprisingly, that realisation had not caused an undue amount of jealousy in Anthea, more a realisation. The pair of them had probably been conducting a clandestine affair for the last 12 years, or even more. Louise was beautiful and friendly, and the sort of woman men would be attracted to. That was all fine. In fact, it gave at least one legitimate reason for her and Humphrey to have had to get divorced. Yes, obviously that was why she'd questioned so many of the details in that account of Anthea's marriage. Quite clearly, Humphrey had been as useless in Louise's bed as he had been in hers. That actually made her feel better. Still, she didn't fancy running into her again, just in case the woman let rip with a few unsavoury details and they ended up comparing unfavourable notes. So, back she was in that cabin. Back she was with the television on as background chatter. Something to keep her thoughts at bay, particularly any thoughts regarding Humphrey. She wished she hadn't been so hasty in the destruction of that article. If Louise had been having an affair with him, then she must have been heartily disappointed on a regular basis. That article, plucked from the world of fiction almost in its entirety, at least gave Anthea the upper hand, wrapped as it was around several throbbing and solid inches of earth-shattering muscle power. It was funny that the woman hadn't even tackled her with respect to that most indisputable of details. It was something Humphrey definitely couldn't have kept from her, although nature had designed him very much with absolute undercover secrecy in mind. It was the only thing that may just have indicated that Louise, in fact, had extremely limited Under the Cover's knowledge of Anthea's ex-husband. In fact, the more she came to think about it, the less likely it was that the woman had ever so much as seen him with no clothes on. For one thing, he hadn't dumped his wife in favour of her, and that was quite clearly something he would have done had there been any sort of straight choice between them. It wasn't even a case of Louise's attributes versus Anthea's lack of any. It was just pure common sense. Louise was the sort of woman everybody loved. Anthea, the sort that everybody hated. Everybody, including herself. She was even more depressed now. It just went to show how dreadfully dull the ship's television service was, since it hadn't been able to hold her subconscious attention for any period of time whatsoever. It was little sodding wonder. It was that flaming Louise and her onboard activities. Anthea turned over to some obscure radio channel, kicked off her sandals and tried again to read the rest of that magazine. The true confession was boring, a woman who was secretly sleeping with her father-in-law. Anthea spent a couple of seconds trying to visualise herself and Michael getting up to any form of no good, but when even the thought of all his money hadn't taken away the immediate feeling of nausea, she very quickly gave up. The story was probably all lies in any case given the editor's complete lack of character references with regard to Anthea's own heap of bullshit. She fast-forwarded through the pages, skimming over the horoscopes. Her own gave nothing away. Something about meeting people and a windfall of some description. Utter rubbish, the lot of it. She went back a few pages. Now that was a bit more interesting. Someone had taken it upon themselves to write in with a secret crush. John Prescott. Nope, she definitely couldn't understand that one. They paid 50 quid for this particular segment of self-humiliation. George Peppard wasn't too embarrassing to have to admit to liking, although her other field-inhabiting fantasy figure was quite another kettle of fish. It made her think that the writer of the John Prescott Confession had much bigger skeletons lurking in her cabinet than just the former Labour deputy leader. The mind boggled, it really did. She was suddenly aware of a song that had just started playing on the radio. That girls' one, the horrendously sexist, horribly degrading, yet unbelievably catchy little number that had taken the world, if not by storm, at least by a light to moderate breeze. There really was something familiar about that voice. It was kind, almost friendly. She would definitely have answered the rallying cry of the owner of a voice like that, even given the sort of sentiments he was expressing. Girls, that was a stumbling block if only he'd been a bit more specific in targeting someone like her. Women. Built like tanks and gravity afflicted, forced into clothes where breathing is restricted. Women. He was a rather nice-looking chap, too, that Barney Adams. Not facially, perhaps, although she couldn't actually recall paying a great deal of attention to his looks, but that bum. She can vividly recall every single detail about that glorious vision of voluptuousness. It had been a slow-burning desire, one that she would not even been aware of, until now, as she listened to that song. Humphrey had never affected her like that. Whether obese or just obtuse, their relationship had been built on more than just the physical side of things. It was a good thing it had been, or they never would have made it even to their first wedding anniversary. Their mutual attraction, if he had ever really been attracted to her in the first place, had been based on something deeper. It would have been comfortable and cosy. In other words, dull and boring. She turned the page. Holy mother of God, what the hell was this? She would have known that image anywhere, whether hidden underneath her ex-husband's desk or apparently scouring surfaces both high and low in search of his missing dignity. Very sensible photographer, though, neglecting to include Barney's face in any of the frames. It would have dragged him back down to the level of most other men the majority of whom could more usually be found dipping their hairy toes in some sort of primordial soup somewhere. Oh, crikey! She hated herself even more now. After all, Sandra had seen him first. She couldn't very well even give voice to the fact that she found him attractive, not when that meant competing with Sandra. There never had been any competing with her, not ever. The cow. There was a knock at the door. It was quite a welcome interruption given the discovery of those photographs and the amount of time she had on her hands. She peered through the little spy hole in the door, but could see no one. Those were always the sorts of doors she didn't mind opening. It was the ones with actual people on the other side of them. Those were the ones that caused her problems. She looked out into the corridor. There were the usual carts collecting dirty linen and the odd room service tray, but no sign of any phantom knockers. She glanced again at those linen carts just in case such a tremendous amount of washing was providing cover to anyone. She was momentarily transported back 12 years through time, to a period where her own bedsheets needed to be washed en masse like that, with a somewhat time-consuming, yet still comforting regularity. That had been during Humphrey's heaviest married days, where one tub of chocolate body paint scarcely even made an impact, except on her finest formerly white Egyptian cotton. He'd always wanted to use that stuff on her, but she'd sensibly never let him. Chocolate was known to have a rather soporific effect on him, particularly in the bedroom, and it was hard enough to keep him interested in the best of times. At least when he was trying to lick the chocolate off his own elbows, he was awake and voluntarily getting into some mutually beneficial positions. She sent herself priority back to her current situation. Her gaze rested on the little mailbox that resided beside her door there was something new peeping out from it. Another bit of paper with details of excursions, no doubt, or an invitation to have a drink and a high-five with the captain. She would have taken herself off to that one if Sandra had been there. Perhaps it was just as well she hadn't been. When photos were taken around the place, you had to go and physically lay claim to them. You had to actually search blindly through wall upon wall of other photographs, waiting for that awful, stomach-sinking, terror moment of vehemently reluctant recognition. No memento of herself with a rugged man in uniform could ever have been worth that. Nor the embarrassment of knowing that other people, while searching through the collection looking for their own photographs, might well have caught one glimpse of her and been left severely traumatised for the duration of the voyage. She had no real desire to ruin anyone's holiday. She took the note from its temporary sanctuary and cast a scornful eye across it. As predicted, it was yet another invitation. It had emanated from the pen of Louise, which did not bode particularly well. She was trying to pair up the singletons on board for an evening of fun and frolics. Anthea did not have fun, and she was most assuredly not into frolics. She was no singleton either. She was a highly put-upon, recently divorced victim in mourning for a life that had promised very little and yet had still managed to totally let her down. Besides, she was probably destined to be paired up with John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. Suitably unimpressed, she crumpled the note in both hands and returned to her magazine. And, heavens above, those pictures! Fifteen minutes after hanging up the telephone, he was still cursing himself for his own damn stupidity. That woman, Louise Lovewell had indeed revealed some knowledge of Barney and his posterior attributes. It had been a bad line, very crackly, but from the distinct sound of pages being turned, she'd obviously been refreshing her memory as to the details, even as she was engaged in that conversation. She'd shown some considerable interest in getting him into the show the following evening, and had promised the pair of them bed and board for two nights, provided they didn't mind roughing it with Number One Platoon. Humphrey had even managed, with an almost Jean Kelly-like quality, to sidestep all her attempts to get him to reveal exactly what it was that Barney was supposed to be doing. All was going swimmingly, and figures were just about to be discussed when it happened. She asked him his name. And, swept along by the tide of momentary euphoria, he told her. There had then followed a horrendously long pause, during which time he'd been able to hear yet more pages turning. In that instant, and far, far too late, he realised just what he had done. Barney was on his way to see him, a rather fortuitous coincidence under the circumstances. Even if he was about to tell him he had defected to someone with his finger on a supply of generously proportioned boobs, Humphrey didn't even care. Not at that moment. All that mattered was getting Barney on that boat. Well, getting Sandra on that boat. Well, getting anyone at all on that boat who could make sure his beloved ex-wife was all right. Oh yeah, and now making sure that Humphrey himself was never on his own with this Louise woman. As far as Barney was concerned then, the choices seemed limited. Their song was a contemporary piece of crud, as opposed to anything that could have been made to look better through the rose-tinted half-moons of nostalgia. Anything else within the broad spectrum of the term singing was probably an ideological non-starter too. Unless he could be positioned with his back to the audience, that might just do the trick. Perhaps the fact that he would be projecting what he almost illegally described as his singing voice 180 degrees away from his whole audience might actually make him easier to listen to. The auditorium would have to be made of some pretty stern stuff, though. With a sigh, he realised the idea would never work. Barney's voice was famous worldwide now. Not his actual voice, but the voice that people would be expecting. He couldn't start his old caterwauling in front of an unsuspecting audience, not now. Anyway, this would be a captive audience, whose sea legs could carry them at speed only as far as the lifeboats. That sounded just a tiny little bit dangerous. An alternative idea was forming. It was skulking up there in his innermost machinations, sitting side by side with another fiendish plot whose time had not yet quite arrived. On that very subject, he could see Barney across the street, having another go at mastering the pedestrian crossing. That gave Humphrey only five or six minutes to professionally polish both plans up. He opened his desk drawer and removed from its depths a rather well thumbed copy of that ubiquitous magazine. He hadn't looked at it for an hour or two. No, that was a lie. He and Sandra had had a look through it together not half an hour before, while sharing their second bag of Maltesers. He had considered it vital to remind her of precisely why she might like to get to Liverpool as soon as possible. The minor details of precisely how he was going to get Barney up there had not been discussed, chiefly because they had not yet even been decided upon. She had instead taken Humphrey's word and had made her way home rather slowly to pack a few posh frocks. He stuck a finger in Anthea and a finger in Barney and positioned his head so he could simultaneously enjoy the pair of them. They had all missed a trick with these articles. Their power could have been increased exponentially, simply by combining the pair of them, one article and three people. Or much better, one article and two people, Anthea and Barney. What had seemed like a fantastically far-fetched load of cobblers could instantly have been transformed into something thoroughly believable. If those photographs had accompanied her story, preferably with the loss of her own rather stoical attempt at frightening children and adults alike, then all that guff involving her love life would have made the most perfect sense. That bum could have carried off any, or indeed all, of the feats that Humphrey himself had been rather absurdly accused of. Humphrey could never have made love to Anthea for six hours, non-stop, upon a bed of rose petals, with none of them ending up somewhere embarrassing, and while writing and composing her a heartfelt love song. It wasn't very clear from the prose just how he was even supposed to have done that. Was the song dictated, or was there a typewriter somewhere around? Surely that wouldn't have been very practical under these mythical circumstances. He couldn't have committed it all to memory either because, far from being impressed, Anthea would have accused him of not paying her enough attention. It would have needed to have been something the length of the Bohemian Rhapsody anyway to have distracted him sufficiently for six bloody hours. Perhaps he just had his trusty old ballpoint. But then in that case, just what the hell did he write on? He managed to drag himself to safety seconds before becoming embroiled in an album of mental images which might just have answered that very question. This wasn't supposed to be about him. It was about Anthea. Anthea and Barney. Ah yes, Barney. Hi Humphrey. Good afternoon, Barney. You've cut down significantly on your personal road crossing best then. An old lady helped me with the button. Jolly good. Funny that, only from my various sources, I was under the distinct impression that you have a man to help you with things like that these days. You know, pedestrian crossings, your career, that sort of thing. Damn and blast! He had intended to string that out a good bit longer, to tease his companion rather more and then deliver the coup de grace with much greater impact. Instead, he'd got himself overexcited, lost control of the situation and allowed himself to frizzle out completely. And why could he hear his ex-wife laughing at him? I wanted to have a word with you about my career. Our career, do you mean? Our song, at any rate. Is that what you mean, Barney? The younger man looked distinctly awkward. As well he might. They want me, Humphrey. They? An uncomfortable silence followed. Eventually, Humphrey took pity on him. Come on, son, tell me everything. I don't think you're gonna like it. Why's that? You're not planning on singing it to me, are you? No, I'm not gonna be a singer anymore. It'll be all about my other star qualities. Humphrey looked at him, mildly amused. Whoever this new manager was destined to be had obviously enjoyed a marathon snogging session with the Blarney Stone. I take it we're talking about your Gluteus Maximus. Barney blinked back at him, mildly bewildered. It was a funny time to be talking about gladiators. No, we're talking about my bum. They reckon I can have a career in anything from television presenting to politics with a bum like mine. What could Humphrey say? Barney's new advisor was almost certainly right. All the same, the revelation didn't exactly provide a ringing endorsement to either one of them. Never mind the public at large who would willingly embrace him. That's good news. I can have my song back then, with all its associated royalties. Well, no, that's a vital part of my career trajectory. This was quite, quite bizarre. Barney had just used a word of more than three syllables, and he'd appeared to know precisely what it meant. What on earth were the chances of that ever happening? Someone had obviously been spouting all this nonsense to him. Someone who was, as likely as not, going to be charging him upwards of 30% for the privilege. But that song isn't yours, though, is it? It's all mine, son. Two right it was. And the royalties were all his, by rights. Which was one of the beautiful things about using Signor Rossini's fine music. Although, given that he had been born on the 29th of February way back when, it had taken a table of logarithms and a modern version of the Enigma machine with which to translate them into something faintly resembling English to prove that the statute of limitations for any cut to be heading to the Adriatic coast had long since passed. Still, he could be generous, and given that time was ticking and Liverpool was nearly four hours' drive away, his generosity could potentially break new ground in many respects. Well, I dare say my new manager will talk to you about it. Have you signed a contract, then? There was nothing else for it. If the answer was yes, it would have to be a kidnap. No, not yet. Hooray. Prison would have played havoc with his skincare regime. I didn't want to sign anything until I'd spoke to you. Humphrey nodded sagely. This was a rather too horribly familiar situation. Someone hesitating to do something in order to first ensure his complicity. Anthony had done it for everything from an ill advised dog vomit coloured sofa to even, arguably, their divorce. And now this only this was worse. Barney wanted a life for himself that he would simply not be able to handle. A life of empty promises, hollow words and shallow relationships, a life that would leave him unfulfilled, but a life that nevertheless had to be lived. Because the regrets of never embarking upon it in the first place would have been even more destructive. Just like his own divorce, it was just something that had to be done, if for no other reason than to understand the consequences and to learn from them. Common sense ought to have told the boy there would have to be downsides. Yes, of course it had. That's why he wanted Humphrey to make the decision for him. What do your parents reckon? My mum told me to do whatever you said. Oh, that was nice of her. What do you really want to do? Barney shrugged. Well, sonny Jim, it sounds to me as though you have a chance for everything you ever wanted. That was relatively non-committal. Humphrey was not going to just give him his blessing without getting Barney to work for him one last time. What would you do? If you were me, I mean. Humphrey smiled at him kindly. He would always certainly do exactly what Barney was about to, if he'd been blessed with the same sorts of personal qualities that was. Limited intelligence, almost no common sense of any description, and a bum with 400 websites devoted to it. Humphrey might have scraped in under the first two criteria, and when he'd first met Anthea and uploaded just one photograph of his bum may well have taken up most of the bandwidth of 400 websites. But beyond that, the two men were very, very different. Humphrey would show Mr. At Least 30% how things were done. I'll tell you what, son. I will personally sign that song over to you, in its entirety, if you will do one last thing for me. Barney seemed nervous. Humphrey realised that he still had that magazine open on the desk in front of him. He closed it quickly and shoved it back into the drawer from whence it came. Barney visibly relaxed. Just name it, Humphrey. Good boy. I want you to come cruising with me. Oh, Lord. Of all the words, in all the sentences, in all the cosmos, he'd seen fit to come up with that one. It was all he could do to stop Barney from running at speed straight through the window. That is to say, I want you to fulfil one last professional entertainment engagement for me. Nothing more. Can I sing? I think we've already established the answer to that one, haven't we? Oh, I see. You mean, can you sing? Well, no, I wasn't envisaging you having to sing anything, no. Barney frowned. It's nothing that would damage my integrity. Blimey, Charlie. Another four-syllable word. Barney would have a guest spot on Countdown soon at the rate he was going. No, actually it involves my ex-wife. Mrs Lovewell. Indeed, or whatever name she goes by these days. Anthea. Humphrey thought he might have heard alarm bells sounding in the distance. You've only met her once, is that right? Barney looked uncomfortable. Yes, that's quite right, but I can remember every detail of it. Well, that's Anthea for you. She makes one heck of an impression. Barney smiled dreamily. Yes, she certainly does. So, there were two of them then. Two people who could see the real Anthea. Oh no, wait a minute, it must have been her boobs. Barney wasn't programmed to appreciate anything else in a woman. Yes, look at him now. His hands looked like they were holding two great big heavy bags of semolina. Humphrey's brain cranked into action like an old-fashioned Fleet Street newsroom. Exclusives were being written. Editions for the next few years were being outlined. The situation as a whole was not ideal by any means. But then, nothing in his life ever was. How would you like to meet her again, Barney?